No. Did I lose you? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. So, sorry. I was just getting about. <laughs> it was just such, such a sudden cut of all. Oh, sorry. No, yeah. Just... Through me. Okay. Here we go. I'm just, I'm a little spooked because the last time we did a 1994 show that really, really heavily featured Hulk Hogan was Starcade 1994. Ah. And that was the one where we lost power three times in the. Rec- oh, yeah. I remember that. Like... <laughs> so hopefully that doesn't repeat itself tonight. The first are good. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and charging down the entrance ramp and leaping over the ropes to join me is Alec Pridgen. I saw a, I dropped a cookie on the ring. I needed to get it, so that's pretty good. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't want someone to step on it, you know. It's a five-second rule and everything. It's, it's good to know where your priorities lie, Al. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Well, at least there wasn't a plate glass for you to go flying through this time. Like I've no, done more than one episode because I screwed up on the interest. I've had enough enough uh, issue with glass in my real life, so I'd rather that's avoid true, that. That's true. Avoid that if possible. <laughs> it's become a little bit too real now. The the humor's gone. I, I I really I really do feel for poor Marty Janetti after my own personal experiences. Yeah. <laughs> Even if mine was nothing like that. Well, how's it going otherwise tonight, Al? Going good. How about you? Uh doing all right. It, it's interesting to uh, be getting into the Hogan era now and actually getting into it by literally the start of it. Yeah, yeah. We were discussing this offline that this series is going to be very fascinating because it actually has the start, the major shift, and the end of Hogan's run in WCW all-in-one series, which uh, is just... I don't think you could have actually planned that. No, no. That's that's just one of those really interesting coincidences that happens uh, in life. Yeah, exactly. So yes, tonight we are taking a look at Beach Blast 1994, Hulk's WCW debut. Sadly, this is not the WCW debut of Marvel's Jade Giant, but instead, former WWF stalwart Hulk Hogan. Admittedly, I would not have liked Ric Flair's chances of surviving a match against an angry Bruce Banner, so that's probably for the best. Yeah, Hulk Hogan's more of an orange giant, I guess, at this point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Copper tone sort of color, yeah. Not quite the Red Hulk, but... uh... No. On, on his way to getting there. He has the mustache. He, that's true, he does, yeah. It, it's like it's uh, when you see the Hulk mid-transformation. True. He's, he's, yeah, he's stuck between normal human and Red Hulk. That's what he's at. Well, we talked about this quite a while ago on our Starcade 1994 episode, but since it's been over 40 episodes since then, which still boggles my mind, yeah. maybe we ought to cover it again. As the subtitle notes, this is the WCW debut of one Hulk Hogan. After a very successful run in the WWF that began in 1983, Hogan dropped the WWF title to Yokozuna at King of the Ring 1993, courtesy of an exploding camera, and parted ways with the WWF. He had some matches in New Japan Pro Wrestling, continuing a program with the Great Muda that he'd actually begun while he was WWF champion, But by 1994, Hogan was filming Thunder in Paradise, a show that boldly asked, what if we basically did Knight Rider, but the car was a boat and the Hoff was the Hogan? I I don't know if that's a lateral move or an upgrade in most regards. (laughs) 
We definitely need to do an episode or two of that sometime. Yes. The show was filmed at MGM Studios, just like WCW during this period. So, knowing a golden opportunity when they saw one, Eric Bischoff and Ric Flair, who Bischoff credits as instrumental to making the deal, got in touch with Hogan and talked him into signing up with WCW. Per Eric, on his show 83 Weeks, at the start of his tenure as executive producer, WCW had been damaged by the Watts racial comments controversy, and it had been a money loser for its entire run with Turner, so he'd been told by WCW President Bill Shaw that they had to find a way to turn a profit, or Turner would have no choice but to close WCW. Bischoff says he knew not all wrestling fans would even want to see Hogan in WCW, but his goal with Hogan was actually mostly about the business side. If they proved that they could attract a known star like Hogan, they could get more interest from sponsors, licensing, advertising, and the like. Okay. He says they hoped that they could at least break even on the cost of Hogan's contract through pay-per-views, but if they got even close to that and improved the sponsorships and advertising situations for the company, they'd be happy. So, did Hogan make a difference? Bash of the Beach 1994 was held on July 17th, 1994, at the Orlando Arena in Orlando, Florida, later the Amway Arena, and now nothing as it was torn down in 2012. In front of 14,000 fans, 9,111 paid. That's recorded as a sellout. Now, the arena is recorded as holding around 18,000 fans for pro wrestling, but I'm not certain when in its existence that figure is from. And the figures for basketball change a lot, from about 15,000 in 1989 to over 17,000 in 2008. In 1994, the basketball attendance is shown as 15,291. So I really doubt that we get significantly more than that for wrestling at the time. Mm, yeah. So long story short, I buy that this was at least close to a sellout. Yeah, there, there's shots early on when they did the crowd reveals that it doesn't look great, but at the same time, it is early in the show, so it's possible people were still sort of filing in. Yeah, this is a company that once famously uh, told everyone the wrong start time for a show. Oh, yeah. That's uh, what was it? Uh, Bunkhouse Stampede, I think? That's the way. Uh, Dusty yeah. Spally. Known, <laughs> known internally, yes. Yeah, so I I think, like, as you get shots later in the show, it looks pretty darn full. Yeah. So, aside from, like, occasional people stepping off to take bathroom breaks or the like. So, it feels pretty legit. Yeah. Bash of the Beach 1994 earned 230,000 pay-per-view buys, which is more than 100,000 more than any of the prior shows in 1994 or all of 1993. Oh, wow. In fact, WCW has only gotten 200,000 buys or greater four times at this point, all of them back in 1989 or 1990. That's Halloween Havoc 1989 at 215,000, Wrestle War 1990 at 210,000, Great American Bash 1990 at 235,000, and Halloween Havoc 1990 at 200,000. So at least from that perspective, it certainly looks like signing Hogan was actually a good business decision. Yeah, hard to argue with that. Hard to argue with numbers, yeah. Yeah. Prior to the pay-per-view, there were a couple dark matches. We had Molly McShane with Ron Diaz beating the Sassy Boys, Fez Watley, and Fast Eddie with Ron Bennington in a handicap match where McShane was the only actual wrestler, the others being comedians or radio personalities. And then we had Brian and Brad Armstrong beating Steve Cairn and Bobby Eaton in a tag team match. We'll get to see clips of one of those matches on the pay-per-view, not the one I would prefer, mind you. Yeah. Uh, Fez Watley, that has to be a reference to Pez Watley, right? 
That would be an amazing coincidence if it wasn't, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Hogan made a difference in the numbers, but did it lead to a good quality show? To find out, let's go to the ring. Since the beginning of time, people have dreamt of the unfathomable. The dreamers have turned into champions, and the champions to immortals. Tonight, WCW brings you the unimaginable. Two champions, 12-time WCW champion Ric Flair, and five-time champion Hulk Hogan. When these two worlds collide, a new universe will emerge with only one ruler, one champion. Live from Orlando, Florida, the match of the century as WCW presents Back at the Beach. We've heard that match of the century thing another time. It was uh, Hogan and Piper, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Which they then, as I recall, later redubbed Match of the Millennium. Yes. <laughs> Which would have been great for the Millennium Final show they did oh, yeah. a few years later. A massively over-the-top opening video package talks about dreams of the unfathomable, building up the match between 12-time WCW champion Ric Flair and 5-time organization-admitted champion Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Interestingly, they kind of treat this like the build-up to a title versus title match, talking about how there's going to be one champion, like there wasn't just one champion already. But Hogan had already lost the WWF title when he left. Guess he's just iconic enough of a WWF champ that you kind of just pretend that he's still champ? I guess so, yeah. As we'll cover the other show, there's some very strange confusion about how much time has passed between oh, good God. his matches and everything, so yeah. Yes, definitely. But, uh, yeah, let's face it, if he'd gone back, Vince probably would have just handed him the belt again anyway, so he might yeah. as well be WWF champ. True enough. I will admit, I kind of love this video package. All it needs to be an actual Hogan promo itself is him saying brother and some kind of comment about doing dog paddles or causing an earthquake of the body slam. Yeah. <laughs> it uh, closes up with the wonderful Flexing Wave logo. I adore this series uh, logo. <laughs> it is, Yeah, it's... It's like the right level of campy and serious, yeah. Exactly, exactly. The set tonight is another quite nice beach design, complete with sandcastles and quite faded wooden birds. A cockatoo and a parrot. Did somebody leave those out in the sun too long? Yeah, because the parrot is like a dull orange color. Yeah, it's it's really weird. It should be like a bright red, you would think, normally. Yeah, it looks like those were not treated very well. They just had them backstage in Turner Storage or something, and we're like, oh, those look vaguely beachy. I would have chosen seagulls rather than a cockatoo and a parrot, but whatever. Well, Bob, they spent so much money getting Hogan that they really couldn't afford decorations. So they just went down to Pier 1 and got some. (laughs) What do you guys got in the back you're going to throw out anyways? Host Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show alongside Mean Gene Okerlund and Bobby the Brain Heenan. It's always good to see Heenan. Gene claims that the fans are hanging from the rafters, but that Heenan isn't happy. Heenan says he will be happy once Flair beats Hogan and the fans are chanting loser at Hogan. Tony notes that Shaq is here too, which gives a massive cheer from the crowd. Heenan pretends not to know who Shaq is. (laughs) Tony throws to Darren Norwood, who does a respectable, if quite country, version of the national anthem, and appears to have taken fashion inspiration from Brad Armstrong's America jacket. He'd definitely win Mold of the Night if this was a different podcast. Yes, yes, very much so. 
During this, you can catch sight of Hogan's co-stars from Thunder in Paradise, seated in the front row of the crowd. I know it's in this part, we can definitely see Linda, and I, I think it's the two kids there as well. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, at least Nick Hogan gets highlighted at some point during the night. Now, the dark-haired girl in the front row is from Thunder in Paradise. Correct, yes. Yeah, I remember you and I were started watching this show, and yeah, it starts getting over the crowd, and both of us are like, man, that girl in the front row looks really familiar. Where yeah. do we know her from? And then both of us were like, oh, duh. <laughs> Thunder in Paradise, right? Yeah. I, I don't want to watch both those dumb movies they did, so I should recognize her right away. <laughs> A bit oddly, we go from the national anthem right back to the host discussing the show, as Tony notes that originally Sting was scheduled for a match for the TV title, but he was injured by Sensuous Sherry. Heenan sarcastically says, that's a shame, as we get a video of Sherry, unconvincingly dressed as a man, raking Sting's eyes with her nails before being run off by Hulk Hogan, who was sitting right by the ring and really could have gotten up there to stop that. But I guess he figured Sting would see the obvious attack coming a mile away, never having worked with Dear Trusting Sting before. No, no. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, it takes a while to really intervene and help, but then he really milks his intervening. <laughs> this is true. He does like the super delayed atomic drop where he like holds her up there for like feels like ten, fifteen seconds and then drops her on his knee. Admittedly, she weighs probably like a hundred pounds less than anyone else he's ever done that on, so Oh yeah, yeah. Probably pretty easy. <laughs> no, for sure, yeah. That's gotta be uh be a little bit hard when you're used to, you know, wrestling much beefier dudes and have to do a move like that uh, where you do a, a quick lift on a much lighter person. Okay, remember, don't throw her into the stratosphere. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> I have to say, uh, Sherry's fake mustache and goatee in this bit uh, that she's wearing look very green arrow. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Either that or like a French painter. Yeah, there's definitely, I get a real like uh, D.B. Cooper vibe from her as well. <laughs> that mysterious face. Possibly importantly, Flair took the opportunity to boot Hogan in the knee a bunch of times in that clip as well until Mr. T made the save. Gene claims that Sting has a scratched cornea, and Heenan says we should keep an eye out for him. Glass of Heenan, as always. I was trying to find anything about why Sting's not on the show. Like, obviously, the kayfabe reason is the Iron G, but like, why like randomly pull Sting like literally the day before the show? It's very odd. Yeah, especially because he works a match with Flair before the injury angle, so it's not like. If you feel like if he was actually injured, like he had a legit injury, they would have done a thing where he's scheduled to fight Flair and he's attacked on the, like on the ramp or something. Okay. But working like a full like 10, 15 minute match while injured would be really really weird thing to do just to write him off with the fake eye injury. So I don't know. I've not heard anything on that. Yeah, either. I, I didn't find any comment on exactly what was going on there. Gene shells the hotline, run by Chris Cruz and Mike Tenay at the moment, as no one has yet realized that Mike Tenay can do commentary. Yeah, he's not iron quite yet. <laughs> yes, he's telephone Mike Tenay. Yes. 1-900-909-9900. Heenan jokes that Shaq's more than a foot shorter with his shoes off, as Tony throws to our first match. Our first match is Johnny B. Bad versus Lord Stephen Regal with Sir William for Regal's WCW World Television Championship. The referee for this one is a short-haired, mustached Nick Patrick that I really genuinely thought was Mike Atkins for a second. <laughs> I can see that. Johnny B. Bad is being a replacement. Competitor is not really built up. He, I mean, obviously, he's a guy that, on the previous show, for instance, challenged for the U.S. title. 
So it's not like completely surprising he'd be thrown in a title match. Right. But there's no story like it's not like him and Regal were also feuding. Stings out. We need a challenger for Regal. Johnny B. Bad's perfectly acceptable in that role. Yeah. Bad comes out in a red and white cape and sets off some sparklers before firing off the bad blaster, dooming everyone else for the rest of the night to pick up glitter around the ring. And as you noted, the color pattern on his jacket is like exactly the Eddie Guerrero one. Guerrero must seriously have just like gotten this cape and made that into a coat because it is exactly the same. He is the same guy that did wear an American flag jacket in Mexico. When the first time he borrowed someone's jacket idea. <laughs> Tony, spot- spotting all the glitter that's been spread by the Bad Blaster, jokes that it's going to take a year to clean the place up, and I don't think that's too much of an exaggeration, honestly. There's a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Regal has his usual awesome cape, but you can briefly catch a glimpse of him in a very colonial-era outfit, complete with white wig, in his entrance video over his shoulder. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Bad overpowers and out-wrestles Regal to start, and Regal's back ends up covered in glitter. But Regal repeatedly uses the hair to take Bad down for several two-counts, so Bad also ends up glitter-covered. They trade one-counts off a Regal monkey flip. Regal and Bad trade throws and takedowns until Regal gets fed up and lands several forearms. Heenan cautions him about getting in a slugfest with former boxer Johnny B. Bad. Bad counters a front face lock by flinging Regal arm first to the mat, and Regal retreats so Sir William can check his shoulder. Back in, Regal lands hard strikes as Heenan mentions that he and Gene Okerlund were in a movie. That would be Time Master, which also featured Pat Morita and Michael Dorn. It's about a kid traveling through time to stop fight managers from destroying Earth. Bad works the arm with arm locks, wrist locks, and hammer locks, and Regal lands strikes when he can, getting a brief break with a double knee and drop kick before Bad goes right back to the holds. We get a quick shot of Thunder in Paradise star Chris Lemon in the crowd, covered in confetti. What's less dignified, Al, that or him starring in Firehead? Oof, wow, that's a tough, sh- that's a call. <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking Firehead, just because... Yeah. yeah, me too. Because in Firehead, he's not even the guy playing Firehead. Right, yeah. He's like, he's Firehead's buddy, so yeah. Though, 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 truth be told, doesn't the fact that he's not known as Firehead make it a little bit better, actually? I don't know, for me, if, if you're going to be a movie called Firehead, you should at least be Firehead. Might as well do the crime if you're going to do the time, basically. Exactly, in for a yeah. diamond, you know, for a dollar, yeah. <laughs> Regal boots Bad in the head, but Bad lands a dropkick for one. The crowd is very behind Bad. Bad flying head scissors, back body drop, and he lands the kiss that don't miss— but Regal falls out through the ropes. Sir William comes over, so Bad dives onto both of them. Back in, Bad Sunset flips Regal, but William gives Regal a handhold with his brawly until Patrick kicks it away for two. But Regal squirms free and rolls Bad over for the three count and the win. It felt like maybe that last spot was supposed to go a little bit smoother, but it also does look kind of realistic how Regal struggles into that, so I'm not really sure. Yeah, he, he makes a point of like getting his shoulders under Bad's legs, so when he leverages them over, he's got his full body yeah. weight against him. With Regal, I can honestly see him thinking, oh, this will look really nice and real if I kind of make this more of a struggle than the graceful flip that we sometimes see, but I can also see it just being, oh no, they just didn't have their timing quite right, but he made it work. Yeah. I think the problem uh, viewing it is we're so used to that constant pin exchange in situations yeah. like this where they roll over back and forth multiple times and like they do the flip and everything 
So going from one pin and forcing another, it it feels abrupt. Yeah. And yeah, so that's, that's probably part of it. Regal gets out of the ring, but Sir William gets to the apron. So Bad brings him into the ring, back body drops him, and stomps on his bowler hat. It's uh, it's funny, but even knowing that Sir William's the same guy as Bill Dundee from Starcade nineteen eighty six. It wasn't until I saw him here without the hat and the glasses that normally kind of disguise him Mm -hmm. that I could really make the visual connection. I already knew it was that guy, but then, you know, you see him and you're like, oh, yeah, it really is that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I get that. Uh, Thoughts on this one? I thought this was a good match. Um, It's real competitive, which I like. There's a tendency for these real scientific matches to be really one-sided or in the other, because it's easy to tell a story of one guy controlling someone the whole time or long chunks of time with arm holds and you know various stuff like that i liked how competitive like a back and forth they were with this mm-hmm. it's one of the matches i think that really elevates both people yes definitely because bad has his whole thing is his whole vibe i guess is he's, it's big flashy offense so seeing him really hold his own in the grappling sort of contest like this is nice while at the same time regal gets to really show his striking ability mixed in with the technical ability together. So it, both of them get a nice sort of showing there. Yeah, they kind of do go a little bit into each other's specialties. Yeah. That's a good point. It's also a match that's really helped by the crowd. They get nice reactions for everything. Everyone seems to really invested in what's happening. Which is funny because, again, they were doing what we told the day before that it's going to be a sting match. So there could be a concern we lose, yeah. lose the audience by take, pulling sting away. Yeah, bad at the very least wins them over really quickly if they weren't either that or they're just like, oh, well, it's trying to be bad and we like him anyway. So, oh, yeah. And that's surprising to see Mitch here, but it's nice to see him in a situation he's put in like this to still get it very well. Yeah, it's nice that he wasn't damaged by it. Um, as you noted with the finish, it can go either way how you view it. On one hand, like I said, it could look pretty real because he has a sort of block being rolled over, sort of reposition himself. So he's got his full weight and then pressed down on him. Mm-hmm. Or you could look at his and they didn't didn't quite get position right, but they eventually got there. Yeah, I think at the very least it's a good cover. Yeah, no, no pun intended there. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. <laughs> I know it's like a classic '80s and in the '90s wrestling thing, but it's weird the level of that Sir William gets beaten up. Contrasting that to last year's match where he is the direct reason why Eric Watts doesn't win the match. Mm-hmm. You know, he literally strikes Eric Watts. So I get Eric Watts beating up Sir William. But Sir William never actually really interferes other than doing the umbrella spot, which arguably Bad doesn't even see, to be fair. The level he, like, pulls this guy in and beats the crap out of him is like, yeah. feels yeah. a little heelish, even though I know it's not meant to be. Yeah, I think the idea is supposed to be like Sir William is getting in his face because he actually climbs up onto the apron to confront Bad. Yeah, that's fair. But yeah, still, yeah, you're like, I would understand this a little more if he had actually hit you or something like that. The finish part with Nick Patrick kicking the umbrella is right out of the Earl Hebner yes. thing, where he loves to kick people's arms off the ropes. You go, whoa! Uh, yeah, I think I'm generally in agreement. I thought this was a nice solid first match with good energy and personality from both guys and some really nice exchanges and big stunts, which got good crowd reaction. The only thing that kind of holds it back for me is that bad works Regal's arm for quite a while and Regal sells it well, but there's no point where the hurt arm seems to stop Regal from doing something. Mm, That's fair. 
and also Bad needs just a bit more variety in his arm work. He keeps going back to the same wrist lock over and over, but at least he is really energetic about it. Yeah. Maybe a case of and Rigo putting the match together and Rigo really pushing, you know, he should really work the arm, we'll build this up. And when it comes to the actual match, he just doesn't know a lot of holds. Yeah, like you said, they, they're kind of touching into each other's specialties, and Bad just doesn't seem to have that much variety in his arm holds anyway. So, not a major problem, though. No, that's fair. I still felt this gave the show a nice, really hot opening, and it clearly got the crowd charged up. It was a quite nice match with a surprising finish. I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Coming off of the uh, sort of heelish, underhanded way that Regal retained his title. This would, of course, be the start of a feud rather than the end of a feud, which would build up to Bad challenging him for the title once again at the next pay-per-view, which is Fall Brawl. As Tony starts to speak, Heenan lets him know that he has to go check on something regarding tonight's card, and he'll be back later. Tony tells him to wait a moment and talks about the celebrities and dignitaries that they've got tonight. Behind him, a quite good Hogan impersonator mugs for the camera. Mm-hmm, yeah. Tony says the Hogan-Flair match has drawn attention, and Hogan is prepared. Heenan agrees that he's prepared and says that he hopes it worked in exactly the manner one would say that if they actually meant they hoped it didn't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tony throws to the ring, where Mean Gene Okerlund and a lady in a sparkly dress introduce Antonio Inoki, who was midway through his second term in Japan's House of Counselors. Gene presents him with a plaque in honor of his contributions to pro wrestling and calls for and gets a standing ovation. But suddenly, Regal re-enters the ring. So, am I led to believe, my eyes here, that this man from overseas is receiving a plaque for being an honorable wrestler when a noble Englishman like myself who's been elected into the House of Lords and has beat everybody that you have to offer doesn't get an award? Am I led to believe right? You'll have your day Sunday, Regal. I've put an end to one legend in this country, and now you have to fly legends, supposed legends, in. I've just come back from Tokyo, where I defeated each and every one of the supposed great stars in Japan. I didn't see this man anywhere to be found. Are you kidding me? He is a legend in Japan and all over the world. Listen, beating Muhammad Ali, beating the late great Andre the Giant doesn't wear with me. I am far superior to you, and it's a bloody good job you're retired right now. Else, I'd have to give you a lesson just like I give Zabisco one. Hey, hey young man. Inoki shouts at Regal, takes off his jacket, and goes after him, but Regal quickly ducks out of the ring and yells threats while Sir William urges him to retreat. Interesting little segment here. This is building to a match at an upcoming Clash of the Champions between Regal and Inoki. It's too bad that they couldn't get that match on this show because an Inoki match is one heck of a huge deal. Mm -hmm. Bischoff doesn't actually address the timing on 83 weeks, but he notes that they picked Regal because they knew he could work the Japanese style and wanted to make him a key person that they could have represent WCW in matches in Japan. Good call, yeah. As Regal accurately noted, he had just come back from one set of matches in Japan, though he's less accurate about beating everyone. <laughs> and indeed, Regal would have further matches in New Japan in later 1994 and in 1995, including challenging IWGP champion Shinya Hashimoto, who we saw face Scott Norton at Collision in Korea. Correct. I could see that being an interesting match. Hashimoto was quite good, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Incidentally, Regal would also team with Scott Norton while he was there. Ah. All told, it's a good little bit of build here to what seems like it'd be quite a fun match. Mm. I've said a different segment before. It's weird to use pay-per-view time Mm -hmm. to promote a TV match. Yeah, I think in this case, it's a little bit more forgivable because it's such a notable match. Right. You got Antonio and Noki for a match. This isn't just, you know, a, a match that you can normally see on TV. This is a special occasion. It's a little weird that we're doing the match on TV instead of on here, but at least it is a Clash of the Champions that they're building towards. Yeah. Not a not a normal show. So, you know, there's there's that. But if timing worked out and if some of they do this match at Fall Brawl, use the Class of the Champions to have them in a confrontation. Do the same presentation ceremony at Class of the Champions. Exactly. And then you have a month or however much time passes between the shows to build up a fall brawl, so people are going to really pay to see a Noki match. Yeah. Presumably they just couldn't work out the timing that way to both get a build-up and get a match without doing it at this schedule, but I haven't really seen someone address the timing specifically. Gotcha. The other thing I love with this promo is uh, Regal, with a straight face, basically claims that he's never heard of Antonio Inoki at first. Yes. And then uh, very much reveals that he has clearly heard of Antonio Inoki, because he talks about the Muhammad Ali match and about him fighting Andre the Giant and all this stuff. Yeah. You're just like, okay, Regal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right up there with him claiming that he didn't break a sweat beating Eric Watts last year when Mm -hmm. he was pouring with sweat. (laughs) Yeah. I think my favorite part is the fact that he's still covered in glitter. Yes, with the, with the sweat. It's like, I, I am the better man than you, uh, Anoki. Sir William, couldn't you have picked those off yeah. <laughs> backstage? You had a few minutes. <laughs> I think my one critique, I'll be, to be <laughs> not joking. So Okraland, he goes to Anoki with the plaque, and he says, oh, we can get some translation for this. The translator never, ever seems to talk to Anoki during the segment I, at all. I genuinely wasn't sure if that was a translator for Anoki or if Gene was saying something like, can someone give me the translation in my earpiece for what's written on the plaque? Oh. Like the plaque's written in Japanese and... Hmm, maybe. I get the impression he was going to show it to Anoki, and that's why the, the, the translator guy walks over closer like he's going to read it. Yeah, I, I thought that was just another dude that... Because Anoki seems to perfectly understand Regal, and... When you hear him shouting at Regal, he does seem to be speaking English. Well, I think I, I think we were having when we saw it the first time. It's not even necessarily that he understands Regal fully, but he can read yeah. by language like anyone That's can. True. So Regal's, you know, he's got his, his fists up, he's got his dukes up, as they would say. But yeah, that's just kind of weird. It's like, let me get translation for this, and then they don't ever translate. We cut back to the commentary table, and Jesse Ventura has replaced Bobby Heenan. Tony praises Inoki as a legend, and Jesse notes that he's wrestled Inoki in Tokyo before. Our second match is Vader with Harley Race versus the Bo—I mean, the Guardian Angel. Mm-hmm. Referee for this one is Jimmy Jet, and commentary now is Tony and Jesse. This has been a long-running feud. It really goes back to almost the end of last year, and then going through this point. So it's it's surprisingly long, a long-lived feud. This originally started back when he was still the boss. There's a match where he's he's not he's not the referee. I think he's the enforcer for a match involving Flair and Vader. And then of course he gets physical and they beat him up and all this stuff happens. And then they have the angle where after he is matched with Vader, he uses the nightstick. Backstage he has his basically has his gimmick taken away. 
they basically do like Bachwinkle is the angry police commissioner and boss yeah. and bosses. It really is, yeah, yeah. Rogue cop that went too far. <laughs> give me your badge and your gun. In this case, it's give me your badge and your nightstick. Yeah. There's a match or two after this on Saturday night where he has to wrestle without his boss game and he didn't have his outfit or anything. He just curve wrestled his Ray trailer. But he's scouted during these matches by the Guardian Angels, or at least probably by someone playing Guardian Angels. I can't imagine they got a legit person there just to stand there and go, ooh, you're really cool. For anyone who's not aware of this, we are not talking about people dressed as angels in white with wings and halos and everything, that type of Guardian Angel. We're talking about the Volunteer Crime Prevention Organization. Correct, yes. They wear red jackets and berets. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, just yeah. to make sure I realize, oh, we probably should clarify that. <laughs> yeah, so... They then do a promo where the guardian angel or someone representing the group says that because of your your love and commitment to law and order, we're recruiting you to be a new member of our group. And so now now on, Ray Trailer is a guardian angel. And uh, from what I understand, credit to Trailer, he actually did go through their training program. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I did hear that. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's commitment to your gimmick right there. Yeah, so he, he was more living his gimmick than uh, Sergeant Slaughter was with his uh, fake military background. This is true, yes. That's, that's good, that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and of course this all uh, was actually happening because the WWF was a mite upset at WCW calling him the boss and having him basically blatantly dress as the big boss man just in black instead of blue. Yeah. It is a little funny, funny to me that they decided to go to this guardian angel thing instead of just turning him back into the perfectly acceptable big Bubba Rogers yeah, that he was before in WCW, but... I think they didn't want to change the gimmick that much. They yeah. still wanted a, like, a law enforcement thing. I will say it's funny looking back at it, because go back to the little big boss man thing, is because his gimmick is he's a former prison guard, which, which to your I know is a form of law enforcement. It's yeah. kind of like being a cop, but I think it was this idea that like if you ask people a big boss man, like, oh yeah, that guy, he was a wrestling cop. I'm like, well, not not yeah, really, it's not not know. quite the same. Thing. Yeah, yeah. They they treat him like he's you know making arrests and that kind of stuff as as far as his gimmick goes too. Now now to be fair to WSW, maybe the boss was actually a cop and the boss man was a prison guard, and that was I don't think they ever actually say. No, that's true. Although if he's the boss, then how is Dick Bachwinkle the police chief? Well, uh, he's his own boss, right? Maybe Nick Bockwinkle's the president. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> I mean, he dressed the, dressed the type, so yeah. Breeze yells at Angel, so Angel decks him, but Vader clubs Angel from behind, beats him down, and hits a spin kick, of all things. Yes. <laughs> Tony sounds absolutely stunned calling that. It kind of reminds me of the scene in um, Turn of the Jedi, when they're doing the race through the forest on the speeder bikes and the log just comes and hits you. Yes. <laughs> that's pretty much like running up full speed and here's this, this log flying at you like that. Yeah. Angel fires back with strikes and several easy-looking slams, even walking with Vader on his shoulder and tears off Vader's mask. We get a shot of Hank Aaron, Antonio Inoki, and WSW President Bill Shaw in the crowd. Jesse bizarrely suggests that Regal was criticizing Inoki over Pearl Harbor. Yeah, um... First, no. And second, no. And third, Regal is English. Yeah. <laughs> Not American. I mean, I'm sure they weren't super pleased with that happening either, but... You know, right, still. the Brits were already at war with Japan. That's kind of a non-factor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not as worst World War II reference on the show, but still, yeah. Yeah. 
Angel keeps landing strikes in and out of the ring, but Race comes over so Angel decks him again, only for Vader to hit what Tony calls the Vader bomb, but it's the double forearm shot. Vader takes over with punishing forearms and tries a second rope sunset flip. (laughs) Holy crap. Yeah. Angel drops on him. The crowd is super loud for this. They are, yeah. Vader leg hold, then a cross face, and he rolls Angel over for two and swears on the kick out. <laughs> Vader hits the second rope Vader bomb. Tony calls it another version of the Vader bomb, which I believe is uh, Tony Schiavone for Oops, I Got the Earlier Move Name Wrong. Yes, yes it is. Vader moonsault, but it hurts him too, and he can't cover. Jet checks on Vader, and Race climbs up top, but Angel flare karmas him down. That's ironic. Yeah, of it. <laughs> Angel disposes of Race and Vader, but on a shoulder block, Vader stumbles into Jet, knocking him loopy. Angel checks on Jet, and Race hands Vader a telescoping baton, but Angel disarms Vader, only for Jet to recover, see the baton in Angel's hands, and Vader slumped in the corner, and disqualify Angel. Now Jet, you know what happens when you assume. Yeah. Angel argues angrily with Jet and appeals to the crowd, and Vader clotheslines him from behind and gets out of the ring, retreating with Race. Angel springs right back up and goes back to arguing with Jet and getting the crowd to support him. Jesse supports the ref's decision, and Tony praises Angel for not having actually used the baton. Thoughts on this one? A really fun, hard-hitting match for me. As we discussed before, these two interacting, they seem like they legit like to work with each other because they're both bigger guys that really could move more than you could think. Well, I can't really picture Retro doing a moonsault, which admittedly is the peak of things you can do that size. It's still impressive, his general mobility he has. Mm-hmm. It's just really fun watching these two guys work together because Vader doesn't really have to hold back, and likewise, Bray slash Angel can do the same thing. Because that's the thing with Vader. He gets a lot of flack for, you know, legit beating up people. And I get that mindset, this whole idea of that, you know, wrestling is a sport, but you got to be careful. And obviously, there's the one incident where he maybe goes a bit too far without hurts a guy. But he's also a guy that takes a lot of pretty strong beating. He's used to that mm-hmm. working that style in Japan. So it's not like some of the wrestlers were. He loves just beating you up, but then, you know, won't take bumps for you. I do like that we got to see the moonsault, because I love the moonsault. That's so amazing. So beautiful. Yeah. That leads to my only real critique with the match, which is that... So Vader does his actual Vader bomb, and then does the moonsault. And I get they do the cell, the injury thing, but... It seems really quick that Guardian Angel recovered from both those moves in sequence, uh-huh. and you know, he, he does his running slide out of the ring and starts beating them up. I feel like they just did not give this match enough time. Oh, yeah. If you gave this like one to two minutes longer, I think you would have gotten more proper selling out of out of uh, Angel on some of those spots. Wait, oh, no, yeah. I don't, I don't think it was like a personal slide or anything, because again, these two guys seemed like they were friends. Yeah. So it was, it's not in time went up at all. But yeah, I feel like if you're going to take both those moves, which are his finishers, he won matches separately with both those moves different. Yeah. It's weird that he goes right to, again, who's his run and slide. Yeah. I, I know it's like a thing he does. He, he does the slide and punch you while you're on the ropes thing. I feel like maybe it's an, sort of an autopilot thing. He's like, oh, I should just move now, but not thinking, you know, this guy is 450-pound man to just, to just flatten me. Maybe I should walk to the outside instead of running like I, I can see that. Yeah. started. But to your point, yeah, there's there's definitely an issue of time with this, which is kind of a shame. Obviously, as anyone listening to the show knows, I don't love DQ finishes. 
That said, I can at least appreciate when they're done well. The idea that they basically got Angel in trouble for a thing he had done previously, but didn't in this one case didn't do, is a, it's a creative way of doing this this finish because <laughs> it allows you to do more with the two of them. I guess my only real critique, other than other than the sort of rush to the end bit, is that we don't get to see a power bomb, and if it matches that a power bomb, it's just kind of sad. But the moon assault makes up for a lot of that. Yes. Vader and Angel are so much fun together, and they seem to bring out the best in each other. They pounded the ever-loving crap out of each other, but also mixed in some cool strength spots and some really unusual stunts. Like, when's the last time you saw Vader do a spin kick? Yeah. Never. That's when. (laughs) Yeah, right? The DQ finish, I did not like. It flies in the face of just about every other wrestling match ever, where if the ref didn't see the hit, it didn't happen, no matter how many guitar pieces are left behind and no matter how loud of a clang the ref heard behind his back. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, this was a really intensely fought and terrific example of the best sort of big man match, with two highly motivated and energized performers that seem to quite enjoy working together. These these guys thus far, whenever we've seen them working together, have been great. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm I'm very much looking forward to more of this feud. Absolutely. I think the only thing that's missing for me from the ending is... Vader, after he knocks down Guardian Angel, taking the baton and like talking to the camera, like, oh, that's where I laughed at, or something like really rubbing it in that it heats his baton. Yeah. If it was uh, Steve Austin or something like that doing it that had the more snarky yeah. style, then you would have gotten that, I think, where Vader doesn't, I think, tend to think that way. <laughs> oh, I know, yeah. It's, it's, it's wishful thinking. Uh, yeah, that have been a fun bit. The but yeah, yeah, definitely. We would, in fact, get at least one more match between these two. Slight wrinkle in it, though, because it's actually a triangle elimination match that ends up being one of the big matches on Fall Brawl. Okay. As for the third person, I'll get to that later. Tony asked Jesse for his thoughts on Hogan versus Flair, and Jesse says Flair will take it. Tony shills the wrestling hotline as we cut backstage to see the hotline's crews and Tanae get ignored by a passing Terry Funk. <laughs> great, great advertising there. Oh, yeah. Tony throws to a video package covering the feud between Dustin Rhodes and Colonel Robert Parker, Terry Funk, and Bunkhouse Buck, which shows both the good Buck match and the boring Buck match. Yeah. As well as Funk's excellent endless promo from Slamboree, <laughs> where he says, like, you, you can't get me off the stage, I'm never leaving. <laughs> yes, yeah. And his attack on Rhodes with a branding iron. I had forgotten the bit where Buck repeatedly failed to set Rhodes properly for a spike pile driver. Yes. It was good on Terry recognizing that that was not going to happen. It's such an awkward thing, because, yeah, because he's... Buck has him in the pile driver position, and everyone's about to do it, but they're not quite set right. So then Funk just sort of jumps down from the second rope. But then, I guess Buck really thinks they're going to go for it again. So let's yeah. up, up again. And Terry Funk is sort of this look and sort of pokes. Like, you are not you are not getting him up high enough. This is not safe for us to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he sort of pokes uh, Rhodes with the breading iron while he's awkwardly held upside down. And then they just sort of drop him there. Let him, let, him, let him down the ground. Amazing that they thought that was the spot they should put in the video package. <laughs> yeah. It's like, is that a rib on them? Or is that like the best thing they really thought they had? Okay, get it. So apparently Rhodes has now asked for Arn Anderson's support. And Arn has agreed. Jesse says he couldn't have picked a better partner. Tony then throws to footage of a, quote, very special match, that being the Sassy Boys versus Molly McShane, guest refereed by Jimmy Hart. McShane being the actual wrestler, won. 
Jesse says he's pretty sure Tony could have beaten the boys, and Tony asks Jesse to be his tag partner. Jesse says that Tony should ask Lois, Tony's wife, as she'd be better, and Tony mm-hmm. cracks up. <laughs> so I, I did some research on this. Mm-hmm. Um, these two guys that they're the heels basically the match. They have a syndicated show out of Atlanta, but they were expanding to more territories, which included Orlando. So I get as a local attraction, hey, here's those two DJs, you know, they'll promote the show, and you know, because they're going to be on the show. Ah, it makes sense. That's basically the man cow thing from Spring Stampede 2000, right? Which is why I'm so glad that we didn't actually get this one on the show, <laughs> right? But then, if you're only doing it for the live crowd and it's not really meant for broadcast, why are you showing us it? Why are you showing it? Yeah. Maybe they figured people in Atlanta would want to see that they were on there, too, because, like you said, they have a show in Atlanta, but yeah, that's all I can think is... For me, there's only one reason to show a dark match on your show if you made a point of not putting it on the main show, and that is if it involves the parka. I would have accepted also Brad Armstrong's America jacket. I don't think time had ever quite worked out, but Brad Armstrong versus La Parka. Oh my is that god! Our, is that our dream match or what? That, that's 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 right up there. That's right up. That's got to be up there with our our personal dream match. Uh, by the way, I I should shouldn't fail to mention uh, Brad Armstrong's tag team partner in that match uh, was Brian Armstrong. Yes, who I believe is the one that later goes on to be known as the Road Dog. Correct, because yeah. there's Scott Armstrong, which is the is the referee dude. The referee, correct? Yeah. yeah. Match three is Bunkhouse Buck and Terry Funk. With Colonel Robert Parker and Meng in an absolutely bad suit, versus the natural Dustin Rhodes and the Enforcer Arn Anderson in a grudge tag team event. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. Just just to know, I'm going to have to be very careful with this one. <laughs> with Funk and Buck. Yeah. Do not mix up their first letters. In fact, I think I'm going to call uh, Funk Terry for the duration. I was going to say, that would be a good idea. Yeah. It's funny, I I just now noticed reading my own notes that I wrote uh, Terry Funk and Bunkhouse Bunk. <laughs> so, <laughs> at, least you, at least you mixed it up in the good direction. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I did the, the, the yeah less profane way. <laughs> I literally, I can't believe I did notice that. I've been working on notes for days, I never caught that much. Nice. Autocorrect doesn't, doesn't, obviously didn't catch that because it's a real word. Yeah. So yeah, they, they address a bunch of it, but essentially what happened is... They do the heels try to recruit a face for the group angle, knowing um, Dustin Rhodes' Western background with, you know, University of Texas and all that with his father. They try to recruit him to join the group. He, of course, you know, he's a white baby face, so he says no. So it goes this long sequence where he fights uh, Bunkhouse Buck on two occasions, which, again, one good and one uh, not as good. The latter of which involves Terry Funk showing up and beating him up, sort of, kind of. So that would again lead to. Him needing backup, he approaches Arn Anderson. Arn knows how uh, the TV drama works yes. because he's asked on WWE Saturday Night. It's your Saturday Night Worldwide. I forget which. He's originally asked to be his partner. He goes, "Well, I'll let you know on Casa Champions." Yes, Arn knows exactly how to promote shows. <laughs> yes, so it's on that show they both come out and do a promo where he they agrees to be his partner on this match. As usual. Buck looks really cool in his full cowboy duster getup, but then he takes half of that off in the ring and looks less cool. Yeah. Rhodes and Anderson come out to what I assume must be Arn's theme. It's a slow guitar riff rather than the natural. Natural. 
Tony thinks this may be the most important match of Rhodes' career, despite him having already had title matches and this being for nothing. Jesse takes the opportunity to note that he himself once wrestled Terry Funk to a one-hour draw in 1976. Arn and Buck start, and Arn repeatedly shoves Buck away, but Buck challenges Rhodes, so Arn tags Rhodes. Rhodes beats the crap out of Buck, so Terry tags in, but Rhodes knocks him so loopy he almost goes after Meng. I would not like your chances against this version of Meng, Terry. He is dressed to kill. Yes. Literally. Terry and Buck both try charging, but Rhodes easily counters both, and while Patrick's getting Buck out of the ring, flings Terry over the top rope. Then while Patrick's checking on Terry, he flings Buck out the same way. Jesse somewhat justifiably complains about Tony's double standard not criticizing Rhodes for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I forget which game it was, but one of the W2K games... Might have been the earlier ones. They they had the what they call them. They're like the full control Ultimate mode. Control Grapples. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's what they're called. Where you like put a guy in a certain position like a suplex or the or like a body slam and you can sort of walk and you know and drop on the ropes or throw him out or anything. Yeah. The way he has uh, he has him up and then sort of walks over the ropes and then dumps him reminds me of how that worked. Mm-hmm. Because you would carry him over body slam and just sort of casually drop him over there. <laughs> A Terry crawling headbutt finally stuns Rhodes, but also Terry, so he tags Buck, who ducks a Rhodes crossbody, so Rhodes bounces off the mat, sails under the bottom rope, bounces over the dangerously positioned steps in the center of the apron this year, bounces off the floor mats, and finally lands on the entrance ramp. Holy crap, man. (laughs) The distance he clears is impressive. It's absolutely amazing. I I think there's one other one he does against, like, Steve Austin one time that's even better, but... But this was seriously impressive, the amount of momentum he gets going there. It's absolutely crazy. You cannot say for one second that Dustin did not give his all for this show. Yes, that's true. It reminds me a lot of when they uh, introduced that sort of ragdoll physics in gaming. Yes. And you get blown up and they toss and your legs would flail, arms fall independently. Absolutely incredible spot. Yes. Terry rams Rhodes into barricades amongst the glitter as Anderson accidentally distracts Patrick. Back in, Buck and Terry trade off wearing Rhodes down with hard strikes and holds with added leverage from each other, and earn two with a Terry reverse neckbreaker and one with a Terry pile driver as Anderson saves. Rhodes occasionally stuns one or the other, but not for long enough to tag Arn, and he gets pounded to the mat. He finally fights free with repeated bionic elbows and gets one with a clothesline, then Flair Karma's Buck into Terry to get time to tag Anderson. The crowd absolutely erupts until Anderson suddenly DDTs Rhodes and you can hear the hearts rip out of the crowd. Mm -hmm. With Patrick distracted by Meng, Anderson drags Terry on top of Rhodes and leaves like he was never tagged in. And Patrick counts three to give Terry and Buck the win. Buck holds Rhodes's arm for Anderson to stomp repeatedly on it. And Rhodes swears very, very loudly. Yes. Buck, Anderson, and Terry all join in beating up a screaming Rhodes as Parker and Meng hold Patrick back until Doug Dellinger, Randy Anderson, and Greg Gagne, of all people, <laughs> yeah, that's right. enter to break it all up. Tony questions if Arn was bought off. Thoughts on this one? It's an interesting match, because it is basically a handicap match, but the story disguises it as a tag team match. So the first time, you get the normal reaction where you just follow the natural team events. And then are 
assume we surprised if you don't know the rule about not trusting our Anderson. Yes, this is true. Obviously, if you know not to trust our Anderson, he, he knows it's coming. So it's interesting watching again when I did rewatch, because obviously you're looking for details. You're looking for, did Arn set up his betrayal early on? They do little things here and there that would be actually hurting Roadwalk, like he's helping him. Mm-hmm. There's nothing real obvious, which is, I think, a credit to him. There's nothing like where he really goes out of his way and does something that Arn Anderson wouldn't do just so it would hurt Dustin. He does the normal like tag spots of, oh, I accidentally distracted the ref and that kind of stuff. Yeah. The one thing I noticed was whenever he runs in for the distraction, he always goes right to Patrick rather than lunging like for the other guys and being stopped by Patrick. Yeah. I don't know if that was an intentional reference or if that's just, you know, how it happened. But there, yeah, there's one point where Terry and Buckhouse Buck are beating him up in the corner and Arn runs in. Instead of trying to break that up, he simply runs and gets the ref's attention. So the ref leads him back to the yeah. corner. But it's, again, it's like it's not super obvious, but it's just like if you're watching, yeah, he seems to be more interested in getting Patrick's attention than in actually trying to save his buddy. Yeah. There's a lot of times where, they again, they tease, can Rhodes get to the tag? And you know, he's so close, but he's not quite there. Classic, you know, tag team formula. Mm-hmm. There is one point where he does get out, and he could easily have gone over to tag Arn. But Arn like cheers him on. He's like, "Yeah, yeah, go and do it." Like he's he's encouraging. So he's like, to, "Not, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's encouraging to stay in the ring." Yeah, he's not like, "Hey, come over and tag me." He's not doing the like, quick come to get me. He's like, "Yeah, you got it. You got. You're good. You're good, man. You got this covered." And plus, they do at the very beginning. Arn does not actually do any damage to the opponents. Yes. He just shoves them a few times, and then they do the. No, we actually want to face this guy, which again feels totally legit for a tag match. Mm-hmm. But you look at it again the second time, you're like, "Oh." <laughs> He intentionally avoided doing any damage to the people that were actually his buddies. Yeah, the yeah the worst thing he really does is again encourage encourage Rhodes to beat them up a bit, but you know, and that's more harmful to Rhodes ultimately. So right, right. And for his thing, that I don't think Terry Funk could really be offended by that. <laughs> <laughs> he's 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 crazy. So yeah, I thought this was a quite enjoyable match with a tremendous twist finish. It was excellently done. Like like you noted, there's there's just not really clear signs of it coming and yet it's also being quite honest that if you look back earlier in the match you know he doesn't do harm to the other side and the points where he interferes are just twisted ever so slightly towards the interfering with roads to where you can think oh maybe that's not an accident yeah it feels like they're actually being honest with the viewer that you could ascertain beforehand that arn is not actually on Rhodes's side mm-hmm. but without really like lampshading it for sure, yeah. Rhodes got to look great in this match, fighting off two guys until that amazing spot with him sailing out of the ring. And then he played face and peril quite nicely, with Anderson doing all the normal sort of stuff that you see a normal tag partner doing, until he suddenly betrayed Rhodes, got him pinned, and participated in an absolutely brutal post-match beatdown, as only a frequent member of the Four Horsemen can. I particularly like that Parker and Meng successfully kept Patrick distracted for the entirety of Arn's entry and exit from the match at the end, so it was actually reasonable that Patrick might not have known Arn ever got tagged in, and therefore thought that Rhodes was still the legal man. Right. I do have a just a question about this finish, though. Mm-hmm. So, assuming Nick Patrick breaks away and sees Arn attack Dustin with the DT, does Dustin win via DQ, even though it's his own partner attacking him? I mean, 
it's a participant in the match attacking another participant in the match. So I don't think that's a DQ at all. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm just yeah, yeah. Because because to your point, they make a whole show of him not seeing him do it. But I think yeah, to your point, I think more to the point, it's still as he said they they don't see the tag at all. So it is no, hey, you're a legal man. Why are you, you aren't you in the ring? Cause, yeah, it, it like it it does seem to answer the one question you would have with that finish, which is wait, if Patrick saw the tag, then he should think that Arn is the legal man, and like they should lose by countout instead of. Which, I mean, they could still could have still done. The arm could just be like, oh, I'm walking up the ramp, you know, count, count me out, I don't care. But I think they actually did successfully hide that from Patrick enough that he could genuinely count the pinfall. Yeah. Yeah, and it helps that that finish, which I think was quite well done, topped off an excellent performance by Rhodes, who got to look very, very strong, even in a losing fight. I've had lots of fun with this one. Yeah. Next show is Fall Brawl, which of course is the War Games show, for better or worse. We get a big War Games match involving all the people in here, plus some other people. War Games becomes a family affair, in which Dusty comes out of retirement for one match to team with Dustin. That's nice. Alongside the Nasty Boys. That's less nice. Yes. <laughs> they would end up facing uh, the stud table, which of course, wrestler-wise, is Terry Funk, Bunkhouse Buck, and Anderson now. And going back to the original way War Games matches worked, the manager takes part as the fourth person on the heel side. So, yeah, Parno Parker is the fourth man in the match. Am I remembering correctly uh, on Super Clash, wasn't it, that we actually saw him in his wrestling days? Yes. I'm, I, and you didn't recognize, I, I had to point out to you that it was uh, him and Bunkhouse Buck in his normal wrestling days as well, yeah. Yes, yeah. And the weird, why is this the main event of the show match? <laughs> yes, that, that was odd. That's interesting, so we got that team up again. Exactly, yeah. We cut to Mean Gene on the ramp, and he dubs that disgusting and despicable. He tries to talk to Anderson, but Anderson won't talk to him now, instead inviting him to a backstage party later. Orkeland expresses his disapproval and throws back to Tony, who is now with Bobby Heenan and Hank Aaron. Aaron gets big cheers from the crowd, and says that he's enjoying himself and he's pulling for both Hogan and Flair in the main event. Heenan jokes that Hank will be running for president, and Hank laughs and agrees that he's a great politician with an answer like that. <laughs> Tony thanks Aaron for joining them, and Aaron says he's sure everyone is having a great time. Hank Aaron just comes off as a tremendously great guy in this segment, just having a fun evening. It reminded me of the bits on um, the early Slamborees where they had the legends on the shows, and some yeah. of them were just having just having a grand time. Obviously, with the exception of the two legends they talked to after the hardcore match, yes, <laughs> which you were not fans of what they just saw. Yeah, the, the worst possible time to decide to talk to Vern Gagne and Luthes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I love little moments like this. Yeah, and of course, as we discussed, Tank Aaron is very integral to WCW history. Yes, as the guy that got, the guy that made all these weird rules at the first Beach Blast show uh, fired for. Justifiable cause. Yes. Once Aaron is gone, Heenan jokes that he was a so-so hitter. <laughs> Tony impressively no-sells that one and advertises Fall Brawl. Tony asks Heenan's opinion on Rhodes and Anderson, and Heenan says that Anderson should beat up the whole Rhodes family, and he's pretty sure that Dustin has a broken arm, so Dusty ought to bring the pickup truck and take Dustin home. <laughs> okay. Tony praises Dustin for fighting so hard against two men in that match. Tony builds up the upcoming matches, Steamboat versus Austin for the U.S. title, Pretty Wonderful versus Jack and Sullivan for the tag titles, and Hogan versus Flair for the world title, then throws to Gene with Sherry and Flair, who wears an excellent purple and silver robe. 
All right, Tony Schiavone, I'm with Century with Sherry. And the WCW Heavyweight Champion of the World with a big smile, a big grin on his face, Ric Flair. How about Double E? How about it? Is he back? I guess he is. Dustin Rhodes, what you gonna do when Double A runs wild on you? You've got other things to contemplate tonight. The biggest match of your career, Ric Flair. There is no doubt about it. Standing by on the wings to challenge you for this title is none other than Hulk Hogan. I walked in the door. They said, Nature Boy, S.I.O. Standing room only to see Hogan and Flair go at it for this. I said, boys, that's just the way the Hulkster and the Nature Boy want it. We want it sold out. We want it live. We want it worldwide. Dignitaries from all points of the world are here. And Noki, Hank Aaron, Everett Hank, Big Shaquille O'Neal, they're all here. But you know why? Because the greatest of all time is going to walk that aisle. And tonight, the immortal one becomes history, right, Sensuous One? That's right, Gene Oakland. For years and years, you've been saying to be the man, you got to beat the man. Ric Flair is always the man. Ric Flair has nothing to prove. You, Hulk Hogan, are the challenger. You, Hulk Hogan, are the one that has a failing career. You, Hulk Hogan, have to beat the man to be the man. We are limousine right. Kiss stealing, wheeling dealers, winners and champions of the WCW. Thank you very much, Ric Flair, champion. And a very lovely century with Sherry. Let's get back to ringside. I love that Flair takes a moment out to praise Arn for excellent horsemening. Yes. Anytime that wrestlers talk about a match that they weren't in, I love it. It makes everything feel so much more connected. After that, this is a quick but great promo to build up just how big Flair versus Hogan is and to give it a sense of global attention. I would actually have liked this to be just a tad longer to really get to epic craziness, but for the time it got, it had massive energy, and I absolutely adore the ending with Sherry joining Flair to do some woos. Mm-hmm. The two of them built off each other's energy really well. Oh, yeah. Is it me, or is the first pronunciation of Shaquille was really odd? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. It was like Shaquille. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's two words. Like you, I really enjoyed that he did reference the last match. Obviously, it's Arn, so it's a given, but it's still a nice thing to see. Yeah, every every now and then you'll get a show where people are like constantly talking about each other's matches. I always adore that. Yeah. I will say it's it, it's really a good showing for Sherry here. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, she's kind of underrated in this role, especially when she's working with Ric Flair. It's easy for a lot of people, no matter how good you are, to struggle to keep pace with Ric Flair and like in a one-on-one sort of situation or one with one yes. situation like that. Like you're following a Flair promo. There's not like a big drop off where like, oh, now she's speaking. She's really good at this, but yeah. She really she seems to like pick up the energy and just and just carry it forward quite nicely. She has great emphasis as well. She mm-hmm. emphasizes yeah. you are the you are the one with the failing career. Yeah. It's ouch, by the way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I think she does a terrific job here. And, and like you said, it's it's easy for a lot of people to kind of like disappear in a promo segment if Flair's part of that promo segment. Yeah. But she she doesn't at all. She she's really uh, stands out as well and carries forward that energy and just and blends in nicely with with what he's doing. 
and you know they even finished the promo together. So it's it's a really nice touch. Yeah. Now for me, there's only one knock against this promo, and that is the fact that Ric Flair refers to the WCW. Yes, that he does. That really must be a carryover from his like two year stint in the WWF. True. Yeah. This is relatively recently after his return. Still. Yeah. So yeah. Flair, you know better. <laughs> yeah. Right. So she went from being sensational Sherry in WWF to sensuous Sherry, which I think we were discussing like a like a brainstorming session with the writers. Like, what can we call her that sounds like sensational, but won't get us sued? Because we we already we already have uh, Vince knocking at her back door because of the boss over here. Yes. Also, really like her um, elaborate eye makeup. Yes, it was funny when we were watching the promo at first. I remember thinking that just some of her hair had fallen across her face because it's black eye makeup mm-hmm. and it's the same shade as her hair, basically. Yes. So I thought it was just a, a strand that was stubbornly clinging to her face and then realized, oh, wait, no, that's that's actually makeup. <laughs> yeah, there's like a, there's a little bit of a twisty curl at the bottom. Mm-hmm. She has a real like kiss thing going on with this makeup, I noticed. Yeah. Or it's, it's almost like the um, anti-venom, where it's True. white on black like that. Our fourth match is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat versus Stunning Steve Austin for Austin's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson, and our commentary team is Tony and Heenan. These two are longtime rivals, and in fact, they mentioned in commentary that Austin lost the TV title to Steamboat uh, in the previous year. So it's one of those things, at this point, all you gotta do is say, hey, Steve Austin, this guy you hate because, you know, he's been on the U.S. Championship for, like, quite a few months now. I think he won it, like, in December 92. They got a nice sort of run to this. I guess say, hey, this guy you hate is gonna fight his old rival again, and his old rival again has beaten him for the title before, so it's a natural sort of thing. So you don't need a lot of build-up for this. Yeah, and these two guys are both good enough to be able to pull together a lot of emotion in the ring, like said, drawing on their history and just on the fact that Austin is so insufferable as a heel. Mm. Oh, yeah. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> He's very good at his job, yeah. Dragon statues now frame the entryway for Steamboat's entrance, emitting steam, which is awesome, but does look a little bit odd next to the faded wooden birds in the beach set. A little bit, yeah. Steamboat does a fire-breathing act for the crowd, and Heenan jokes that he's a human Bic lighter. A sponsor of the show, probably. <laughs> oh no, if they were a sponsor, their logo would be on the mat and all of the uh, turnbuckle pads, and Tony would reference them like every other second, as we learned from <laughs> Western Union Slampery, please help us, we need the money. Yeah. <laughs> Austin is out next, and he's getting closer to his later look with the black trunks and vest, but he still has gold trim on the vest and hair. His tights read Dragon Slayer. Just a nice little dig of the knife still. <laughs> oh, I thought Star was a fan of the 1981 film. <laughs> he might be. We never know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. This is a transitional period mm-hmm. uh, for people that don't recall stunning Steve Austin as much. Back when, you know, he was more clean-shaven, you know. Yeah, the Saved by the Bell tights and everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But uh, they, def- they were definitely going for a Ric Flair thing, which is, you mm-hmm. know, it's not a bad thing to emulate. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, giving, giving him multicolored robes and all this stuff. And this is post-Hollywood Bond breakup. So he's broken on his own here. And yeah, it's interesting to see because he's got essentially his fancy, frilly, stunning Steve Austin jacket just down to a vest, which obviously we lose a lot of those frills over the years and become leather instead of uh, sequined. 
absolutely fascinating to see his look develop over the years, right? Like you you see him go from this long haired saved by the bell pants type of thing to then like the Hollywood blondes era when the hair is getting shorter and shorter and uh he's going towards towards having like vests and things and then this look which basically is the stone cold look plus a little bit of hair and some sparkle <laughs> yeah and then yeah then he'll go to the stone cold look by just basically losing the sparkle in the hair <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah totally absolutely fascinating to see him develop over the years of that in that regard oh yeah for sure Austin attacks while Steamboat's back is turned and strikes the leg, but Steamboat boots him away and walks the top rope while holding Austin's arm, jumping off to strike the arm. Hammerlock slam. Austin gets some cheap shots, but Steamboat knocks him off the second rope, and he dangles from the ropes outside, so Steamboat beats him up. Steamboat works the arm with arm bars and strikes, and Austin uses the hair to escape and fakes a knee injury. Heenan suggests that they give Austin a 20-minute break, and Tony almost agrees before realizing what Heenan said. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful moment. Austin rolls outside, and Steamboat chases a now-glittery Austin and slaps on a sleeper hold. Austin tries to run Steamboat into the turnbuckle, but Steamboat shoves him into it and rolls him up for two. Austin sneaks in a kick to the crotch. Heenan blames Austin's trick knee. <laughs> yeah. Austin repeatedly clotheslines Steamboat, and he spills out to the floor, so Austin suplexes Glittery Steamboat back in for two. Steamboat flips over a back suplex and hits a double-handed chokeslam for two. Back to the armbar, and Steamboat senses the crowd getting a bit restless, so he yells that'll break the arm and immediately gets cheered. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Then switches to knee strikes on the arm. The camera ends up behind the commentators, so Tony points out the brain, and Heenan points to Tony as the other part of the anatomy. (laughs) Tony clearly struggles to hold back laughter until we change the cameras. (laughs) That's it, yeah. It was a great moment. (laughs) Yes. Because Heenan is so, so fast on draw with that one. That was always his thing. I think Heenan makes a habit of trying to crack Tony up when they're on camera, and this is one of the moments where he just almost gets him. It's great. It was very close, yeah. Steamboat runs into Austin on a leapfrog, catches him, lowers him safely, and rolls over for two. I think that was a botch, but Steamboat recovered so fast from it. It's really impressive work. Yeah. Steamboat earns two with a slam, but Austin slams him, knee drops him, and rubs his face on the mat, mocking him between strikes. Steamboat beckons for more, absorbs several strikes, then catapults Austin to the turnbuckle for two, but Austin gets two with a swinging neckbreaker, then eight two counts and one one count after smashing Steamboat's face to the mat hard. I like with that segment that he actually, he really changes up the way he's pinning him between yes. each of the pinfalls. Mm-hmm. So he's like really trying everything he can to get this guy to stay down. Yes. Austin chokes Steamboat on the ropes and jumps on his back, then waves Steamboat's hand at the camera. <laughs> Moments later, I swear you can hear Austin tell Steamboat, let's finish strong. I, th- I think so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit too loud there, Austin. Steamboat counters a charge with a stun gun, and they brawl outside. Back in, Steamboat Double Chop gets two, and Austin repeatedly hurls him over the top rope, but Steamboat skins the cat back in, so Austin can't get himself DQ'd. Steamboat gets two with roll-ups and a flipping pin. Austin Tombstone Piledriver countered by Steamboat, countered by Austin, and finally again by Steamboat, as the crowd loses their minds. It's an amazing spot. (laughs) Just incredible how smoothly they managed to do that. I didn't think that Steamboat could one-up the uh, 
you know, walk up the body during the Tombstone Piledriver spot from his match against Rude, but this absolutely blows that out of the water. Yeah, that's quite good. Austin shoves the ref in the way of a top rope move, but Steamboat avoids him. Steamboat begs the ref not to disqualify Austin and cross bodies Austin, but Austin rolls through for two, then puts his feet on the ropes for the three count and the win. Austin beats it to the booze of the crowd as Steamboat sits stunned in the ring and finally dejectedly makes his own exit. He then claims Austin accidentally got his feet hooked on the ropes there. <laughs> Tony says, maybe it was that trick knee again. <laughs> yeah, right. Thoughts on this one? This is a really strong match. Again, it's, they do a great job of being very competitive. Mm-hmm. Because there's a tendency you could get, in, especially with the going for real sort of cowardly heel, like Austin turns into, especially by the end, tendency to make them just sort of always on the back foot. Like, they, you know, they can do a low blow to get advantage, but they can't hold because they're just not, they're not as good as the face. But in this one, obviously, Steve ultimately has the advantage. That's why he has to cheat to win. But he fights Steve really, not valiantly, because it's not his personality, but really strong throughout the match. It's, it's yeah. an even contest in a lot of places. He feels like a capable performer. He, he yes, doesn't yeah. feel like he's beneath Steamboat as far as his fighting ability. Yeah. Even at the point where that amazing tombstone reversal spot is not simply just hanging over tombstone and Steamboat reversing it. He reverses it back and then Steamboat just reverses it again. Yeah, exactly. They're both perfectly capable of pulling off that reversal. Yeah. Right. Likewise, they each show good amounts of sort of variety to body work and how they can strike as well, which is nice. Mm-hmm. It's interesting at this point in career, because we have this and we had the previous month match with Steamboat. I think it's Steamboat and Flair, if I have the timeline right, on this one. Uh, on Spring Stampede? Yeah. A couple months ago, but... Okay, yeah, but yeah, the earlier, yeah, recent show. You can see Steamboat sort of evolving his offense a bit. Mm-hmm. In that match, that's the one where he sort of hints at heel aspects because Flair is getting cheered so much by the sort of the hometown crowd. Yeah, he starts doing the really aggressive steamboat to the point yeah. that Tony says, I think he was going to hit him with a chair there, and you're like, actually able to buy it? Yeah. Like in this match, they're surprised when they see the double-handed choke spot. Mm-hmm. But he definitely does that in that Flair match. And likewise, he's doing a lot more strikes, sort of vicious strikes, like, you know, down the ground and striking the side. So it's not just like the chops to get space or clotheslines to knock him down. It's neat seeing his style evolve do what wrestling does eventually come into a lot more in the upcoming years. Yeah. Even if he doesn't necessarily get to take part in all that, unfortunately. Yeah, it definitely feels like this is an evolved Ricky Steamboat that, like I said, he's got a little bit more viciousness to him, but not in such a way that you actually take him as a heel versus Austin. No. It just feels like he's that ticked off at Austin, basically, in this one. Exactly, yeah. Austin's really great here as well. He plays cowardly, but then once he gets the advantage, he's super full of himself. Mm-hmm. The bit where he knocks down Steamboat, and then the ghost, instead of going for a pin or even going for pushing more offense, he goes and celebrates on the you know, on the ropes of the crowd and in the boo. And he starts like mocking Steamboat's like martial artsy poses and yeah, stuff. Exactly. He is an absolutely wonderfully insufferable jerk in this match. It's it's great for him. This is definitely an evolution as well. I've had mixed feelings towards his stuff, like his single stuff, because we, again, in the previous show, it was him and Muda, which I didn't like as much as this one, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I can see, you can get, you can see him evolving from a sort of less exciting sort of technical wrestler, which obviously, people forget he has this technical wrestling experience, because people 
think of Stone Cold, you know, just punching and punching and punching. After he has the neck injury and just can't do that anymore, yeah. Right. People kind of forget he he could do that. It's the balance of how much is just you being a really fun, hateable character, but not integrating that into your style, like two two separate things. Mm -hmm. Not to compare Austin to to Buff Bagwell, but (laughs) he's an example of someone that never fully integrates his persona as much into his wrestling as you would hope, for instance. Mm-hmm. I like that you can see his growth this way, that he's really put it all together. Yeah. And obviously, it helps working a match with Steamboat, but he's no slouch in this match at all. Yeah. This is kind of like, you're, you're seeing the developed Austin post-Hollywood Blondes having enough distance from that, that he's been able to take the elements of his Hollywood Blondes character that he liked and keep them, but then make it a deeper and more well-rounded character. Exactly, yeah. I also like the way they sort of built the ending up. Even though it is still the heel gets a cheap pin to win, I like the way that they sort of build that he was trying to get disqualified. I do question a little bit. I get the idea is, okay, so Steamboat's feet didn't hit the floor, so it's not a disqualification. I feel like you can, you can go after intent there. Yeah, it would have been nice if they had Steamboat also visibly ask Anderson not to do it at that point. Yeah. It, it, it's the, it, it feels like when they do it without that moment, that it, it is a legit loophole. If you just skin the cat, if you hold on to the ropes, it's not a disqualification, apparently. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, I, I can see that if the idea of the DQ is the guy is probably injured, we need to call the match, then I can see that being the case. But like you said, you can probably judge from intent as well. But yeah, I think it comes off as Anderson's being patient with Austin until he just finally can't take it anymore. And that's what Steve has to jump in and say, no, no, no. Mm. I do. I do love during that moment, by the way, uh, when Steamboat's just about to jump in and beg him not to DQ Austin, that Anderson is yelling at Austin. Austin is fully acknowledging everything he did and basically saying, yes, I should be DQ'd. Yes, I should be DQ'd because he wants that. Yes. <laughs> but it's just like he's, <laughs> you you can watch him, and it just looks absolutely amazing. Him just nodding his head as Anderson's threatening to DQ him. Yeah, yeah. So as much as I really wanted to see Steamboat win the title here, because obviously his freaking Steamboat, mm-hmm. and he works hard and deserves it, I could appreciate at least that they subverted the idea. Because you think after all this time of trying to get disqualified and escape with the title unfairly, he would then lose, like it all backfires. Uh-huh. But then he gets a cheap roll up and wins. Yeah, it's a really good finish. It is, yeah. Yeah, this was an excellent match, as you would very much expect from these two. Mm-hmm. Steamboat is full of fire for this one, and Austin is so tremendously smug and punchable. Oh, yeah. I do feel like the arm work maybe goes on a little bit too long. Steamboat surprisingly doesn't vary his holds too much. But to his credit, Steamboat does really wrench on the arm bar throughout. And when he detects the crowd getting restless, he ups the intensity and changes things up. Aside from that, though, lots of good striking, great counters, and some excellent and surprising stunts, that triple counter pile driver, my goodness, mm-hmm. made this a really fun watch. I love the finish, too. It evades the cheap DQ and cheap distraction finish, moving past both those possible disappointments into a good, solid, if heelish pinfall. Very, very good match. One other thing I would say is, we discussed this with the Steamboat Rude match, there's a thing that you don't see as much in modern wrestling, for better or worse, because you know people debate this all the time. There's little pauses to let the audience see something happen. Mm-hmm. So, like in that pile driver spot, for instance, it'd be easy in the sense to do that quickly, 
<laughs> like he reverses, oh, reverse back, and it'll, it'll from the mindset of let's really throw a message the audience's head because we'll we'll reverse it like three times in a row quickly. They will know what's going on. Yeah. But what they do here is they reverse it. They make a show of sort of kicking their legs and moving their body around, and then the reversal over is a little bit slower. Mm-hmm. It's still fast though to save obviously. You can't go too slow with the reversal like that. Yeah, it's it's just exactly the right speed where it seems fast, but you also have time to acknowledge what's happening. Exactly. The crowd can go, Oh no, Austin get the the, the powder. Oh yay, Steamboat's can get the powder. Oh no, Austin, yeah. It's just little touches like that Steamboat has in his matches that maybe some people don't do anymore, which is unfortunate. That is one of my favorite spots that we have watched in our show. Just absolutely amazing. Unfortunately, this is a very historically notable match for all the wrong reasons. So what happens is at the next class of champions, there is a rematch between Austin and Steamboat. Steamboat actually does win the US title in that match, which is great, but unfortunately he injures his back in that match. And he forced away seems like it could be a temporary retirement, but fortunately it is not a temporary retirement. This leads to him not wrestling another match at pay-per-view again, at least, until 2008. Yeah. Which he makes a rack. But it's a really impressive comeback after a long layoff for the tag match and then a singles match against Chris Jericho in the WWE. Yeah. Additional age and ring rust should work against him and just doesn't seem to. Yeah. So yeah, unfortunately, this is the last time we're going to see Steamboat in the series because of that. Which is a shame. I kind of... Steamboat for those guys. It's, we'll talk about, you know, wrestlers that missed a storyline like or an angle because of injury, like mm-hmm. you know, Triple H being injured right before the invasion storyline happened, for instance. Chris Benoit is the same way. I'm generally curious, the injury didn't happen. What happened with Steamboat hanging around into ninety six and ninety seven? Oh my gosh, yeah. I really want to see what that'd be like. Would we get a stick Steamboat and Hogan? Fighting for the title, things, things that go. I, I could genuinely see Steamboat being just a fascinating character to to have involved in that angle on WCW's side. I can also see a, a really interesting edge case, given his his harsher edge that he's trying to bring to the character with these last couple appearances, like you mm-hmm. said at Spring Stampede. I could genuinely see them saying, "Hey, why don't we play with the idea of NWO Steamboat?" You know, that, that, he yeah. finally gets fed up enough with Flair's antics or something like that, that that causes him to snap. I don't know how you do it exactly, but yeah, like I could actually see that's the one way you could maybe make Ricky Steamboat a uh, heel and make people actually buy it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting. I thought about that way. But yeah, even if you did the more obvious and probably honestly better approach and had uh, Steamboat as a WCW stalwart during that, there's so many fascinating possibilities. Yeah. I think Steamboat versus Hogan would be neat, but Steamboat versus Kevin Nash would be quite cool too, actually. Yeah. You have um, Steamboat and Flair, for instance, teaming up to challenge the Outsiders. Yeah, yeah. The tag titles, yeah. Yeah, there's there's some genuinely fascinating possibilities. It's, it's such a shame that, because as you noted, he's like developing his character to, to be able to work with what wrestling is becoming while not losing the heart of his character. Absolutely, yeah. And it's it's such a shame that we don't reach the point when wrestling has this this harder edge that uh, that he seems to have foreseen was coming yeah. and, and be able to adapt himself to. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, uh, that creates a vacancy, or at least a question of vacancy, for the U.S. title. If Dimbo is injured and can't wrestle, what's going to happen with the title? Well, at Full Brawl, you'll find out and probably not be happy. <laughs> yes, that's If you're true. me, you won't be happy. Yeah. A story for another show. 
Tony calls up more footage of Cruz and Tanay talking to folks for the hotline, in this case, Pretty Wonderful, Paul Orndorff and Paul Roma. 1-900-909-9900. Heenan asks Tony to pick a winner in the tag title match. Tony picks Jack and Sullivan as they're unpredictable and it's impossible to defend against them. Heenan says it's easy to defend against them. You just put them in the straight jackets that they're used to wearing. <laughs> Tony throws to Mean Gene Okerlund, who is at Colonel Robert Parker's party in the back. Hey, wait a minute. I've got credentials. I've got credentials. I can go anywhere. What do you want in here? Hey, I want to talk to This Arne- is a private party here. As you can see, we're smoking cigars, drinking beer, and drinking some champagne. Hold this glass there for me, Gene. Watch this song good right here. Huh? We're going to pop the top here, boys. Hey, about that Arn Anderson? Number one man right there, brother. A real gentleman. That's the man he I want to talk to. Anderson. He's let me say one thing. Hey, let me say one thing. We was coming back from the ring, and this kid leaped over. He leaped right over the top of the railing, and he came up to me, and he dropped to his feet, and he had me like this. He said, why did you do that? To, why did you do that to Dustin Rose? He's such a great wrestling entertainer, and I kicked him away from me, and I said, his daddy was too. wrestling. Let me clear it up before you talk to you know, it's very few times you make an agreement with a man and you can trust him and his honor. And I want to say this, I want to toast right now. I want everybody with their glass in the air to toast one of the most honorable, finest men. This man right here that's just joined our stud stable, Andy and Thalsa Anderson. Anderson, I can't believe you. I tried to talk to you earlier. That is the most disgusting thing and honest to God I've ever seen. Gene Oakland, less than a year ago, I was laying in a hospital bed in England. Beat, I trust you, Colonel. I trust you. I'm sure it's all in order. I know you do. I was laying in a hospital bed, beat half to death. Right down the hall from me was my constituent, beat half to death. And I thought, for what? I'm not a crusader. I'm not going to lay up here, beat half to death, to represent what I think is right. I'm going to do what I think is. Now, Dustin Rhodes, I told you, if you wanted me to be in the match, you would have to take the old Arn Anderson. The old Arn Anderson who would smack his granny in the mouth for 50 cents. You said, fine, whatever it takes. Well, Dustin Rhodes, you got him tonight. You made a pack with the devil, and the devil called his marker in a little bit soon. Thank you, gentlemen. Apparently, friendship and trust doesn't mean anything. In this cesspool, let's get back to you. Ladies, you should be ashamed of yourselves. Quite a nice chaotic atmosphere to this segment. You really got to cross the feel of the group celebrating while happening to have an interview, rather than putting on an interview while supposedly celebrating. Yeah, I can see that. It's a subtle difference, but they, they manage it well. I'm sure it was pretty distracting to be cutting promos while people are hooting and hollering and interrupting and dumping champagne all over Arn in his pretty expensive-looking glasses, which he rescues very quickly from the liquid. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But Arn managed to keep his focus and deliver a neat promo, fully admitting that he's decided not to fight for what's right, but just pursue money. Mm -hmm. Excellent heel work here. Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting to hear Arn pull in the aftermath of his legitimate fight with Sid Vicious at a hotel in England. 
Oh, that's true. I was I was thinking that's what he referenced. I was yeah. I checked the timeline, and that's that's exactly the time that it would have been happening. Is about a year prior. Oh, okay. There you go. And yes, that's the one that reportedly ended with the two stabbing each other with scissors. Sid being stabbed four times, Arn twenty, and both blessedly surviving. Yeah, I do imagine that's the sort of thing that would make you think a lot about your life. I'm not sure I would have referenced that actual event in a promo myself, but it did let Arn pull in legitimate emotion. That seemed like a thing he would do a lot later as well. Mm-hmm. He'd bring in his own actual issues. The idea that he wants to be honest with people. Yeah. Rather than just being Arn's character and saying, well, here's a story of why I'm upset or something. Yeah. 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 And you can see him thinking, well, everyone kind of knows that this happened, so I might as well do something with it. Yeah. It's not overt, like that terrible moment with uh, Eric Bischoff. Yes. Dude, thousand are like, you get your scissors, Sid, and the crowd has no reaction. He thinks, oh, maybe they didn't hear me. So he says it again. And then yes, like, yeah. Like, nope, the audience is not people that care about that or possibly know about that story. Yeah, I was wondering about the way that they keep, like, interrupting. Like, I feel like it's almost like a rib. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, because Parker's thing is understandable. He's just, like, going to show him the money, like, walking by. But then, yeah, Terry Funk actively pouring champagne on him is like, you guys are just trying to see if I can't get this promo, but I'm Arn Anderson. Yeah. I can get to this promo. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I love how quickly he snatches the glasses off his face, because those things appear to be gold. So <laughs> Yes, yeah. I don't think he wanted it all, all toy- drenched. No, he did not. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a fun, fun, chaotic sort of uh, promo there. It was nice. I will say it's kind of funny, as you discussed for the match, this is like a special, yeah, that was a special like tag team grudge event, or whatever they call it. Yeah. With no stakes, so, I mean, they're, and they're celebrating just beating up Dustin Rhodes. Yeah, now, I mean, I, I will say, I feel like it makes sense in their perspective, because they not only beat him up, they appear to have perhaps broken his arm and stuff, so I can right, see them yeah. saying, we may have gotten rid of our opponent, you know, so right, for, heel, yeah. for heels, that feels legit. It felt less legit when Tony said, oh, it's probably the most important match of Rhodes's career, but from these guys' perspective, they dealt a severe blow to Rhodes. This is a, a, a real victory for them. I can see that, yeah, I'm with you. Our fifth match is Pretty Wonderful, that's Pretty Paul Roma and Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, versus Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan with Dave Sullivan for Jack and Sullivan's WCW World Tag Team Championship. The referee for this match is Nick Patrick. This is not especially an interesting case of how much things can change over time, and which thing we really get with our format where we go show to show in the series rather than shows in chronological order. Yes. So on the last time we featured people, we had Paul Roma as the newest member of the Horsemen, teaming with our Anderson mm-hmm. as a face team to try to win the titles. And here we are at this point. Uh, he's now a heel, and he's teaming with completely different, and there's none of this Horseman stuff going on. Speaking of time that passed, on the previous show, Pretty Wonderful was in the dark match against the same people that were in the dark match on this show, Brian and Brad Armstrong. Oh, okay. So in about a two-month span time, they've gone from opening dark match to sort of prove you guys have a proper tag team chemistry and can work together off TV to challenging for the world tag team titles. Okay. Definitely a glow-up, as they say. Yeah. The other story, of course, is that it was supposed to be Kevin and Dave Sullivan challenging for the WWE tag team titles, but in kayfabe possible reality, Dave Sullivan is injured, and thus Cactus Jack comes in, and they have that really good match where they fight everywhere and win the tag titles off Nasty Boys. 
Yeah, the shockingly good match against the Nasty Boys, as I recall. Uh, yes. <laughs> Given their pedigree, it, it, it was a very less surprise. Yeah. Some offense to the guy, I guess, but can you imagine that match with Dave Sullivan instead of Cactus Jack? I don't want to, no. I really <laughs> or, don't. Or this match, for that matter. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't want to do that. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm sure he's a lovely fellow in real life. I've never yes. been yeah. nothing personal against him, but no, I don't want to see him wrestle. As far as the storyline, typically between the teams here, pretty wonderful little stick is we're big, good-looking guys, and you guys are weird slubs. You know, one of you used to be a druid, I think. You were hiding out in an island of, off of Florida. But here's us, we're so great, and Jack, so we should be champions, not you guys. Orndorff comes out in a nice black and gold robe, and Roma has a red and silver jacket. Orndorff's robe is just super glittery, though not as much as the floor still is. True. <laughs> Tony complains about Arn and company celebrating with champagne after trying to break a guy's arm, and Heenan agrees that that is wrong. They should have had caviar as well. <laughs> nice. I love Bobby Heenan. <laughs> He's so good. Jack and the Sullivans are out next. Kevin Sullivan is billed as formerly residing in Singapore, now Daytona Beach this time. Okay. That's a big commute. Yeah, yeah, just a bit. <laughs> Brother Dave, the former Equalizer, wears a Hulkamania shirt. Orndorff and Roma out-wrestle Kevin and Jack in turn, pausing after each move to brag. That's no good, Jack mutters. So he bites Roma. Roma still brags as he dodges Kevin later, so Jack headbutts him, despite Orndorff's attempts to warn him. <laughs> Orndorff in to land nasty strikes to Kevin, but Jack uses his own body to shield Kevin from a corner-to-corner -corner whip. Roma tries the same to Orndorff moments later, but Kevin just switches corners, and Jack knees Roma, who, credit to him, sends himself absolutely skyward on that. He does, yeah. Pretty wonderful retreat outside. Back in, Orndorff lands nasty strikes to knock Jack out of the ring, but outside, Jack and Kevin knock him flat. Orndorff ends up near the steps, and Jack at first seems like he'll dive at him, but either Orndorff ends up out of position, or Jack decided diving over the steps is a bad idea, so he just rolls Orndorff back in. I feel like it's the latter. Yeah. He lo he's looking, he you can see his sort of gauging, and he's like, uh, no. Yeah, though it is actually surprising to see a stunt that Cactus Jack decides is a bad idea. Yeah. Tells you, tells you how crazy those steps location are. Mm-hmm. They land heavy strikes on each other, with the only hammerlock coming from Jack, astonishing Heenan. Roma and Orndorff trade in and out, gradually wearing Jack down and making sure to keep hold of him even on tags, but eventually he escapes and tags Kevin, who charges across the ring with an <laughs> funniest noise ever, <laughs> and rams both Orndorff and Roma into the turnbuckle a few times, then double stomps Orndorff for two. Kevin and Jack trade off working Orndorff's arm as the crowd starts up a wave. Heenan sarcastically praises them as only 14 years behind the times. <laughs> as wrestling references go, that's, uh, that's pretty decent, then. Yeah, that's true. It's right on time. Orndorff escapes with an eye rake and tags Roma. Everybody into Brawl, and Patrick and Tony get mixed up as to who the legal men are, so Orndorff gets two with a pile driver as Dave puts Kevin's foot on the ropes. Kevin actually already reached another rope, but clearly wasn't supposed to, so he quickly takes his foot back down. Yeah, that confused me a bit. I was like, wait, what's going on for that one? Yeah, I think he thought he was further from the ropes than he was, so... Oh, okay. Roma takes over, and Heenan is just praising his agility for springing up to the second rope when he slips off. Yeah. <laughs> Bad timing there. 
He does quickly recover, at least. Mm -hmm. Roma and Orndorff trade off, sometimes without tags, and earn two counts with a Roma top rope elbow drop, Orndorff wobbly need forearm drop that mystifies Tony, and a Roma elbow drop. But Kevin dodges a swan dive splash and tags Jack as Roma tags Orndorff. Jack beats the crap out of Orndorff, and Kevin disposes of Roma, who visibly throws himself out of the ring. Yes, yes he did. Jack hits the double-arm DDT to Orndorff, but Patrick is dealing with Roma and Kevin. Dave accidentally distracts Patrick further while trying to call his attention, so Roma trips Jack from outside and holds his legs as Orndorff pins Jack for the three-count and the win. Roma and Orndorff pose with their new belts. They have a nice uh, uh, synchronized pose there, too. Mm-hmm, yeah. And Heenan is happy, but says he hopes there won't be a new champ in the next match. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've mentioned this yet, but WCW has taken to using beach-themed uh, CG to go to and from replays and the like, and I love them for it. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. They have, like, a shark go by at one point, a surfboard at another point, I think. The spinny beach ball coming back from this replay is particularly fun. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. That was good. I, I appreciate, like, they've done a great job on this series so far, much like Spring Stampede, of having the set design and all the graphics and everything be very on theme. Yeah. I'm a little disappointed that they dropped the commentary's dressing for the beach, though. Yes, that is true. That That's something we missed from the previous years. Yes. Thoughts on this one? It's a good match, but it's, there's a few key problems, I would say. Mm-hmm. I don't think the styles of these two teams meshed as well as I think on paper it sounded like they would. Orndorff has this real deliberate, the exception of his, his weird dancey wobbly knee thing. <laughs> this very deliberate old school style, which I think works, as I discussed before, I think works with high energy opponents. So it works well when he's fighting someone like Muda, for instance, that match we got with him in 95. I will say, you mentioned this on the last show calling on that match as a positive. I went back and listened to our commentary on that match, and you were not very in favor of that match at the time. I, I, I yeah, I could, I can change. I'm, I'm allowed to evolve. The person. But that, that was just the easy example I had yeah, of that, yeah. I think. It's really what it is. And Roma, like, we got him last show. He didn't do anything bad, but he's very middle of the road for the most part, I'd say. With exception of the uh, part where he tries to climb up the top rope without, you know, looking at it. And slipping, and to his credit, recovering. And genuinely, genuinely, that followed a genuinely nice uh, spring up onto the second rope. He made that look easy and did it great. I wouldn't have even noticed it if it wasn't for the fact that he didn't chose that exact moment to say, that Roma, so uh, so agile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, oh, just poor, yeah, no, I get just poor timing. They sort of tried to mix with each other a bit. Mm-hmm. Like, you got a lot of striking, I thought, with Warner, which was fine, but... The whole thing didn't quite come together as much as I would like it to. Okay. There's the very slight miscues here and there, like or just questions about what's going on. Like you mentioned the bit with Cactus Jack where he's gonna jump off and then doesn't. Yeah. There's little things here that there's never real botchy moments or obvious like giveaway bits, but again, there's the part with Paul Roma where he takes like a punch and throws himself over the ropes. Like he's expecting a bigger strike or something. Yeah, it feels like there's just a few moments, not many, but just a few moments in this match where they're visibly not on the same page as each other. Mm-hmm. So this style, kind of style clash match works when there's a real clear distinction in like one side is like either a really fast style, like if you have tactical wrestlers, like we have Dean Malenko, for instance, is a great example of this. Mm-hmm. And we'd have these cruiserweights that when they're kind of fighting back, they can do these good flips and run real fast and all these real fast counters. Or you get the real explosive people, 
And I don't didn't quite get as much as I thought from this. I don't think this is a bad match. It just the problem is this match goes almost exactly as long as the Steamboat Austin match, mm. and there's just not as much interesting content in it. Yeah, the timing of the finish was a little off too because for it to work, Nick Patrick has to not see Paul Roma, and originally he's just standing up on the floor. Very visible if you look straight ahead for the pin, like you should be doing for as a referee. Mm-hmm. He then drops down below the apron, out of sight, after he would clearly have been seen. Yeah, true. It's not a major thing. I think what they're trying to do is just sort of show that they can get a sneaky pin, which is kind of the theme of this show in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Again, the timing is just a little off, and just very slight miscues throughout. The biggest issue is that they kind of lose the crowd during the match which I don't think is 100% their fault. And, I, and it's not like I'm being real critical of the match, and they, but I'm not saying that like, it's a bad match and that's why the crowd doesn't care. I think the issue with the show, at least as far as the crowd is, when you saw Steamboat counter, as you mentioned in the previous match, is so much of the crowd is really here to see Hogan. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, they enjoy parts of the show. They pop for big moments, or they boo for characters and such. But the fact that there's no Hogan sighting at all, not even like a backstage promo. This is true, yeah. The crowd gets antic as they want to see Hogan. If they had done a promo, like, say, between the last match and this match, where Hogan does his usual Hoganism and talks about how he's going to win brother and, yeah, Jack and all that stuff, mm-hmm. even a short promo would have appeased the crowd a bit, and they go, okay, we know we got to watch this match, then Hogan's coming out. You've attracted a new audience, but you haven't quite fulfilled their expectations yet. The other thing I'll say is, while I'm not the biggest fan of Pretty Wonderful this as a whole, I think they are the right team to be champions going forward, because the audience they're really getting with Hogan and you know the Hogan-affiliated people is used to the sort of classic cocky-heeled tag team sort mm-hmm. of thing, that dynamic. I think this live crowd doesn't know quite what to make of Sullivan and Jack, which maybe is another factor in how they react to it as a whole. Mm-hmm. I think the move going forward to have these sort of classic cocky heel characters there as champions for whoever the next popular team is to come and win the belts off them. That's that's fair enough, yeah. Yeah. Right team for the right time. Yeah, I think I, I, I generally agree that this felt a little long for the variety that it had. It did have some nice twists and turns to it, though. Mm-hmm. I liked the inversion of types that they had here. I actually didn't feel like they had too much of a clash of styles. Instead, I felt like this one... Much like I forget, I now forget which uh, which match we talked about earlier on it. Um, oh, uh, the Johnny B. Bad and Regal match. You were yes. mentioning how they kind of adapt to each other's styles a bit. Correct. I kind of felt that with this one too. That you notice uh, Orndorff and Roma doing a lot more striking than they normally do, and Orndorff's in particular look great, yeah. like really, really vicious forearm shots in particular. Though Roma also, to his credit, has like one part where he just like stomps the ever living crap out of someone in the corner, as I recall. I believe, I believe that's Shaq, yeah. Yeah. So they did t- tell a good story here of both teams going beyond their comfort zones, and uh, Orndorff and Roma probably ultimately being the better team, but just being too arrogant for their own good time and again. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really feel like I had as much trouble with the the clash of styles, and I just I definitely agree that it was, it was maybe a few minutes too long. Mm-hmm. It gets a bit repetitive. Yeah. The ending is a little bit too busy, but it does largely work. I'm not sure if it was planned or a lucky accident, 
But I like that Dave on a crutch kind of ends up in Kevin's way as they're both rushing to try and stop it. I think that's intentional. Yeah. But not so it, it nicely explains why Kevin can't make it on time. Yeah. I think overall I did like this and I enjoyed Pretty Wonderful's heel work, but there's just not quite enough move variety for a 20 minute match. That's all. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Yeah. Make this 15 minutes and I think you got a real winner. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. Going forward, the champs would continue facing the new teams of WCW. In this case, they would be fighting the latest tag team with Marcus Bagwell, Stars and Stripes. <laughs> nice. Which is Marcus Bagwell and the Patriot, Del Wilkes. Yes. Before his more famous run in WWF, challenging Bret Hart. And that actually take place at Fall Brawl. Unfortunately, on the other side, the now former champions implode on each other due to a lot of issues going between Dave Sullivan and Kevin and Jack, which leads to a Loser Leaves WCW match on Fall Brawl between Kevin Sullivan and Cactus Jack. I wonder who's going to lose, he says knowingly. (laughs) Tony talks up Hogan versus Flair and says he's wanted to see this for years. It's the match fans have always waited for. He asks Heenan his thoughts, and Heenan says, one way or another, it'll be a new era. He says, whichever way it goes, people will claim they knew it would go that way. But he says, if Hogan beats Flair, it's a fluke. Tony says, everyone at WCW is thrilled to have Hogan here, and Heenan quickly denies that. (laughs) (laughs) Heenan continues ranting as Tony tries to promote the match. This is so good, I'm just going to play it. Okay. We are thrilled to be bringing you the match that everybody wanted to see. Hulk Hogan, the Hulkster, and the millions of Hulkamaniacs all around the world waiting for his return to the ring against the man who has been the standard in world championship wrestling, the nature boy, Ric Flair. You know, this is the match I've always wanted to see. Not Hogan and Flair, but I've always wanted to see Hogan made a fool of. And this is the man to do it. It's just a shame. It's just a shame that I have to sit here and watch these humanoids cheer Hulk Hogan. I think Hulk it, Hogan should be have a broom in his hand sweeping this arena. That's what he should be doing. And you should be very proud, you should be very happy that we are at ringside able to call the greatest match in the history of professional wrestling. How You'd about rather that? be here than doing a World Series, than doing a Super Bowl, Absolutely. than doing a Stanley Absolutely. Cup. Well, so would I. Because I'm going to love it when Hogan walks out of this building tonight and 20-some thousand people are chanting, loser, loser, loser. I'm going to feel good inside. Then I'm going to go to Bucksnort. I'm going to hang around with Terry Funk, Arn Anderson, and I'm going to have myself a glass of the bubbly. How do you like that, Shivani? And you can go home and have your warm, little warm cup of Ovaltine and a cookie. <laughs> I, love, I love the Ovaltine and a cookie line. That's just yeah. <laughs> Absolutely epic work from Heenan there. Just great. Tony throws to Michael Buffer for our final match. Only six matches on this show, thank goodness. Yeah. I love love it when they give me a reasonable number of matches on the show as opposed to like 14. Oh, man. That, that, was, that show, yeah. Yeah. Oof. I think that's our third Spring Stampede 2000 reference tonight. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think so. <laughs> Leaves scars, man. It does. Our final match is Hulk Hogan with Mr. T and the Mouth of the South Jimmy Hart, versus the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, with Sensuous Sherry, for Flair's WCW World Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this match is Randy Anderson. So, two things happened 
in the early part of this year that are very important. One, Hulk Hogan announced he was going to come to the company. So the second thing is that Ric Flair had become a heel stat. <laughs> yes. As such, they did an angle where he would unify slash get rid of the WCW International title fighting Sting at a previous Clash of Champions to become the only champion WCW. On top of that, they set this angle up that Sherry might be helping Sting, but then she turns on him to make sure you know that Flair is definitely the bad guy here as champion. Because as we noted before, there's an interesting dynamic with the heel and faces in that match with Ricky Steamboat and Flair. Flair getting cheered by a lot of people, just this sort of the we respect you cheering even while he's right. healed. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But they got to make sure they, they don't get any of that because we need the pure adulation for Hogan. Not, I don't even mean that sarcastically. You need that for the story. You need the worst possible person, character-wise, to fight Hogan so you get the proper action. Yeah, Hogan is a superhero face, so you need a supervillain for him to face, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. At, at this stage in Hogan's career, you can't do the Shades of Grey approach, really. No. They're about a year from trying that, yeah. Yeah, you, you get there. You get there, but at this stage, not there. They do tease how Hogan's appearance earlier in the company. Colonel Rob Parker, when he's putting up his opponent against Flair on a show before this, teases a like I think it's a six foot six or six seven former blonde world champion. Right, right. And you're like, ooh, is that Hogan? Is that Hogan? And then it's Barry Windham. Yeah. Which was a good match. Oh but, yeah, and yeah. Unfortunate and well for Barry Windham, but it's funny that they were teasing that beforehand as mm-hmm. well. The one question I have outside of Kayfabe, or I guess in Kayfabe rather, is why Hogan immediately gets the title shot. Obviously, the answer is he's Hulk Hogan, you want the biggest match possible. But I guess just being a champion somewhere else means you got to fight for their top belt in the company immediately with no warm-up matches at all. I'm sure you're fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, obviously, like you said, outside, it's, I think Bischoff is feeling like they're in a bit of a desperate situation. He needs to do the biggest possible thing he can with Hulk Hogan right away yeah. to see if they can get a good return on this investment mm-hmm. and attract the sponsors and everything that they were planning on doing. But yeah, in kayfabe, I guess the idea is we are acknowledging his prominence as a fighter, that this is a world-traveled fighter who has won multiple world titles. We're not mentioning where, but we are mentioning he's a multiple-time world champion. He's still only half Flair's total or less, which is kind of amusing. Yeah. He's like already at 12, isn't it? Yes. I feel like I can buy that, that it's like they signed this as this is a big fight. Right. The premise in and out of character is that we are bringing this guy in explicitly to challenge for the world title. No, yeah. I I, I, I totally get business sense why they did it. I think all things being equal, if business was going better for WCW and they could have a time to wait, you could have built up some strong heel and say so-and-so is the number one contender for Flair's title, even knowing you're never going to have the match. Probably got to prove himself in WCW, you want to say. So he's going to fight, say, Vader or someone else and beat them. Hopefully not Vader, because I like Vader. <laughs> True. But someone like a Vader-caliber guy, and Hogan wins number contender, and then you build up, oh no, Flair has two, three months of, oh, now Hogan comes for my title, I'm going to blah, blah, blah. All the stuff you recently crammed in a short amount of time with this signing and right to title match, just with a little more time. So I get why they did it. At the same time, it'd be nice if they could have built up to Hogan and Flair more. But at the same time, and, and a lot of wrestling fans, mine at this point, that match has been built up for 10 years. So Ex- yeah. I can't fully fault them for doing it. 
As much as I want to say build it up more, I get why. Yeah, I guess that is the legitimate question is how much build do you actually need for Hogan versus Flair when Tony rightfully points out this has been a dream match for fans for close to a decade. Yeah. Which is why it's so shocking that they don't really get that when Flair comes over the WWF. It's kind of a difference in the company's approaches, right? That WCW is willing to acknowledge at the very least that Hogan is a multi-time world champion, has had this legendary career, even if they don't quite say where it is and all that stuff. Yeah. Where when Flair comes over to WCW, they acknowledge that he is currently champion, but they don't necessarily tell you just how storied a career this man has had. Yeah. They don't get as big a reaction as they're hoping for, I think. Yeah. In a way, you could probably argue that there's parallels to what the WWF did in Hogan's second run of the company, because people forget his first run when he's the heel. With Face Hogan in 83, they go very quickly from Hogan is redoing the company to Hogan fights Iron Sheik and wins the title. Mm -hmm. So they're somewhat guilty of the same thing, but it's more noticeable on this one because this first match in the company is boom, right for the title on pay-per-view. And and to be fair, even for that... That's him coming in off the strength of him becoming famous nationwide for his role in Rocky Three, And again, it's him coming in as an already known quantity. Exactly, yeah. So it's an interesting thing with Hogan that he, he has done that multiple times, come in already in a strong position, not needing to be built up, really. Yeah, of course, the irony, too, is Hogan is fired by Vince's dad for doing Rocky Three. <laughs> which then makes him the big star, which gets him this immediate comeback. So the thing that gets him fired gets him this bigger promotion as well. Yeah. Life is just weird that way sometimes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially in sports, yeah. Michael Buffer introduces the match and calls out one of the executives of the WCW, <sighs> Commissioner Nick Bockwinkle. There's a bit of a delay, so Buffer just introduces him again. I'm guessing that they were trying to wrangle all the people backstage because there's quite a lot of people that have to come out for this. Yes, that's probably what it is. Buffer introduces Shaq next, and he gets big cheers. Shaq, of course, was playing for the Orlando Magic at the time, so makes sense that the crowd is uh, quite a bit in love with him. Yes. He is there to present the belt to the winner. Flair comes out first, despite being champion. He is accompanied by Sherry, who gets a silvery strand from the entryway caught on her arm, so just does a really nice pose with it and drops it behind her. Good improv there. That was really good, yeah. Yeah. That's, you, you can tell when someone is a veteran and is like, they're not caught off guard by things like that. It's a nice touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was just great. Flair gets a lot of cheers, but also quite a lot of boos, too. I think folks are reacting to him as a heel, but also as a WCW stalwart. Yeah. Hogan's entrance to new theme, American Made gets a roar of cheers, though you can definitely hear some boos mixed in as an undercurrent. So again, lots of folks treating him as the face or just excited to see him, but then others reacting to him as an intruder into WCW. Yeah, I noticed throughout the show a couple of times, there's these two guys in like suits and ties. During the first match, they're visibly cheering for Rigo when he comes out. Mm-hmm. And there's a point with, I believe it was Steamboat, they like like disapproving faces at him, like they like cross their arms when Steam comes by. They're being the uh let's cheer the heel guys. They're the ECW fans. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah. There's there's a bunch of them in the crowd. There's another dude in the front that I think later shows uh on the seventh day God created Ric Flair sign or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When uh Hogan impersonator guy shows off his Hogan action figure and stuff, he keeps like reaching out like he's gonna try and snatch it away and stuff. 
He doesn't actually do it, which is no. probably good because the Hogan impersonator guy looked quite large. But <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't pick a fight with that guy. He's back, Heenan says, like he's in Poltergeist. <laughs> yeah. We see a little kid who later emerges as Hogan's son, Nick, in the crowd, as well as a different Hulk Hogan lookalike from the earlier one. That one is almost a dead ringer, I swear. Yeah. The guy, the red shirt. The red shirt, yeah. Looks like um, the look that he had around when he was doing um, No Holds Barred. Yes, yeah, that's <laughs> it, that's it. Hogan tears his shirt, high-fives Shaq, and soaks in the cheers. Spotting a Hulk rules sign in the crowd, Heenan says, not for long. <laughs> Buffer goes way, way over the top, building up the batch. I'm just going to play it. Oh, please do. Ladies and gentlemen, just a few days, the world will celebrate the 25th anniversary of one of the greatest moments in the history of the 20th century. Man's first steps on the surface of the moon. Tonight, a quarter of a century later, just miles from the very site where Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were catapulted into outer space to meet their destiny, tonight, two of the greatest stars in the world of professional wrestling are about to collide. Ladies and gentlemen, from Orlando, Florida, uh, let's get ready to rumble! I think that little pause in the middle there is Buffer realizing what he's saying as he's reading his cue card mm. and doing a mental double take. Yes. <laughs> like, what are you making me say? <laughs> I'll be 100% with you. I was really tempted at one point while we were watching this, that segment to give him MVP for making it through that line I, oh my without God. cracking up. Had to be so hard. <laughs> so hard. I mean, yeah. He, 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 he gets a good good vote for me. I'm like, credit where credit's due. You earn that, what, 25000 you get per show or whatever it is? <laughs> I was thinking about that, too. Do you think Jimmy, Jimmy Hart wrote that? Oh, that could be. That really that could be. That feels like Jimmy Hart thing. <laughs> You can't possibly accuse WCW of not hyping this batch to the moon. Ah. <laughs> I'll show myself out. <laughs> Buffer does quite extended introductions of the competitors as well, and those accompanying them, and notes that tonight, Hogan must put up or shut up. He also claims that Hogan has been out of wrestling for three years. No, that would be three months. Yeah, where the hell does that number come from? I don't know, and they say it over and over. Yeah, so yeah, even Heenan, he Heenan has fed a lot about that. Yeah, like he's been away for three years. Is, you know, there's no way he can keep up. Yeah. To be clear, Hogan last fought Tatsumi Fujinami at New Japan Pro Wrestling '94 Battlefield in April of 1994. So that's three months ago. Even leaving that aside, he lost the WWF title at King of the Ring 1993 only one year ago, and had several house show matches before leaving the WWF, and even if for some reason you ignore that, and I don't know why you would, he had loads of WWF matches earlier in 1993, including two, admittedly one was very short, at WrestleMania 9, and was the main event match of WrestleMania 8 in 1992, which is still only two years ago. Yeah. You could maybe, maybe argue it's been two years since he was a regular performer, as he doesn't have a ton of matches in 93 and 94, but to claim he's been away from wrestling entirely for three years is patently ridiculous. Yeah. You can't even claim that they're not acknowledging the time that Hogan was somewhere other than WCW, because Hogan has never been in WCW. 
Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, it's one thing with, like, uh, WWE Now and Cody Rhodes, where they kind of yada yada pass the time between when he left and has come back now. Right. But yeah, there's no there's no point where he was really part of WCW. It's not like they're ignoring a three-year period where he was in WF because he was in there way longer than three years. Right, yeah. They're specifically ignoring past WrestleMania 7 for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> Did they see the Hogan Warrior match at WrestleMania 6 and they were like, that was the Hulk Hogan we want to remember? <laughs> I don't know. It's like, it's so weird. Yeah. It, it's like they act like that match, which with theory was the passing the torch situation for Hogan and Warrior was like like he was going to go away for a while and you know come back like a year later, which he didn't do obviously. Yeah, it's like they're acting where they remember he just cuts off there. And even that, I think you'd have to say four years then. <laughs> True. Yeah. So they actually pick the wrong year. They they act like his career ended when he fought Sergeant Slaughter. I can't I can't imagine that that's the match that Hogan wants them to tie his career back to. I I would think not. No. Not at all. Yeah, why they thought that claiming that perhaps the most famous pro wrestler in existence at the time, or honestly, probably still, yeah, had been out of wrestling for three years when it was patently obvious he had not, was a good idea, is beyond me. So much a reason why you want him, because he spent 10 years building up his name value and legacy and notoriety in WF as, you know, Hogan Brother, Vitamins and all that stuff. So then act like that didn't happen, or at least some of that didn't happen. And and the stuff that you're denying is stuff that would make him even more attractive as an opponent, because he's officially a world-traveled wrestler now. You're denying his work in Japan. Yes. Which, by the way, you just highlighted people working in Japan earlier in the night. Yeah. It's so weird. Yes. Hogan easily overpowers Flair to start, so Flair accuses him of hair-pulling. Heenan praises Hogan so that Heenan will feel even better when Hogan loses. See, Heenan gets it. Yeah. Flair dodges a lockup and struts and woos, so Hogan cheekily does the same to a big cheer from the crowd and a glare from Flair. Flair repeatedly uses the hair to take Hogan down, but Hogan eventually resists and does the same to Flair. Hogan pulls out a cross arm breaker. Sort of, yeah. It's, it's not super smooth, but it's not bad. No, no. I'm credit for trying it, yeah. Flair levers him onto his back for one. Flair repeatedly runs outside to hide behind Sherry whenever Hogan gets the advantage, so Hogan finally shoves her aside and chases him, only for Flair to ambush him with strikes. Hogan fires back, but Sherry grabs his leg from outside, and Flair knees the leg, then chops Hogan out of the ring. Hart saves Hogan from a Sherry chair shot. Back in, Hogan wins a slugfest, but Flair turns a collapse into a double-leg takedown for one. Hogan clotheslines Flair for two, but Flair puts on a reverse chin lock that turns sleeper. Hogan's arm stays up on the third check. Hogan beats Flair up in and out of the ring, but glittery Flair dodges the leg drop and Hogan hurts his leg. Flair goes for the figure four, and Hogan rolls him up for two, and kicks him away twice more, but Hogan is limping badly. This is the point where Heenan also claims that Hogan has not wrestled for two or three years. Heenan? You were there at King of the Ring 1993. Right. Enan was working with WBF until the end of 1993. Yes. When he left because he wanted a lighter schedule for health reasons and for his kids. And then when he realized that working in WCW would be a short drive from where their school was, apparently. And he had to do less work and get paid lots of money. So yeah, we're proud of him. 
<laughs> Flair hits a tremendous stalling suplex on Hogan. Yes, 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 Heenan yells. Hogan no-sells. No, 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 Heenan yells. That's all right. Hogan hits the big boot for two, but Sherry flings Anderson into the steel barricade, then clocks Jimmy Hart with her shoe, so presumably he'll be in the hospital until at least 1998. Yes. Mm-hmm. Flair chop blocks Hogan, and Sherry hits a top rope splash. Doug Dellinger arrives with new ref Nick Patrick, as Flair slaps on the figure four leg lock. Hogan drags himself backwards and grabs the ropes. Flair takes his time breaking, earning a lecture from Patrick, so Sherry takes off her stocking and chokes Hogan with it, then breaks his eyes. Flair works the knee and mostly hits a back elbow, and he and Sherry go up top, but Hogan dodges Sherry's splash and Flair karma strikes. Mm-hmm. Hogan clotheslines Flair and clubs Sherry down. Sort of. Yeah, Sherry kind of looked like maybe she was a bit out of position. I kind of think that was maybe intended to be a double clothesline. Yeah, the way it looks like, yeah. They're supposed to be spaced with Hogan in the middle, and he hit them both at the same time. Yeah, does with it what he can, basically. Yeah. It's funny, he has a little spin and sort of hits her on the side, she falls Yeah. Maybe a laugh. Hogan puts the figure four on Flair. Sherry to the apron, and Hart warns Hogan, so he breaks the hold and shoves her off the apron into Mr. T's arms, but she throws an object as Mr. T takes her away. Flair slugs Hogan with the object and hides it for two. Heenan audibly swears on the kickout. <laughs> Hulk up, punch, 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 whip, big boot, leg drop. Please, no, oh no, I'll do anything, Heenan begs. Yes. To no avail, as Hogan gets the three count and the win. Hogan celebrates with Hart as the crowd cheers wildly, fireworks go off, Shaq hands him the belt, Mr. T rejoins the team, and Heenan absolutely despairs. Mm-hmm. Heenan demands Tony tell him he's having a nightmare, but Tony shows no mercy, telling him it's real. Hogan does his posing to the various sides of the crowd, as Chris Lemon holds Nick Hogan up in the crowd. (laughs) We cut to Tony and Heenan for the replays, and Heenan just sits there moping, refusing to talk, as Tony tries to get him to call the replay, so Tony calls it instead. A dejected Ric Flair fan at least gets his On the Seventh Day God Created Ric Flair and Hulk Who sign on camera, so at least you got your moment, buddy. There you go. Thoughts on this? I thought it was a pretty fun match. It's definitely, uh, a lot of it's a spectacle, I'd say, Mm -hmm. for better or worse. There's a lot of good technical work between both men, to be fair. I'll give Hogan credit for trying the armbar. It's not, again, not the smoothest thing in the world. But yeah, you know, I'll give credit to people like Vader doing the sunset flip. He didn't really do that real well either, so fair is fair. Mm -hmm. Credit for trying and different things. As if you know Hogan's work outside of the U.S., he did try to do more of that overseas in Japan. He tried right. to be more of a serious, hard-hitting wrestler there, which is a weird dynamic where he played two different versions of himself in different continents. The thing I liked about this is I've forgotten how much Flair really gets in here. Yes. Ultimately, the story is still Flair can't keep Hogan down. So it's it never a point where, at any point, Hogan and Flair are equals. That's never, never in, in, in question. As much as I don't like it, it worked for the story of Hulk Hogan again being the conquering superhero that all the kids are going to buy his foam fingers and everything. Even if I don't necessarily like it, I totally get why this booking is like this, at least at this point. This feels closer than you would expect to like a Flair versus Sting or a Flair versus Luger rather than a straight Hulk Hogan match. Yes. Yeah, it's definitely a very different Hogan match than if you went right in from the WBF. Right. 
I think a lot of that credit goes to Flair. It definitely feels like a Flair match that Hogan is working a lot of time and then ultimately still goes to the Hulk Hogan spots. Mm-hmm. My one real critique of the match I'd say is I think they do just about every trick in pro wrestling as a heel against Hogan in this one single match. Didn't save anything for future. No, not at yeah. all. I mean, you have Sherry constant interference, choking, you got ref bumps, you got the Rustic Bio says the brass knuckles that look like brass knuckles, but we'll call them brass knuckles. <laughs> yes. Credit to him for that line, because it's funny. Um, <laughs> when you even have the celebrity interference as well, because you have Mr. T being involved in that. Speaking of Mr. T, he's both a good and really bad ringside enforcer. Because he's of no use at all when Hogan is getting kicked in the balls or when he's being attacked on the outside or when Jimmy Hart's being attacked on the outside. He's really only there for the one spot to yeah. catch Sherry. And even then, he misses her throwing the object because that's part of the story. Yeah. Unfortunately, there, you know, there's some people that you bring in that do a good job of like doing their role constantly on the outside. And there's some people that you bring in and, and that seem to just like remember their one spot and do it. Yes. And it seems like, at least in this case, you know, Mr. T is more of, they told me one spot, I'm going to wait for that spot, and I'm going to do it right. And he does it right. He does, yeah. But yeah, you're just kind of like, you could have been doing a lot more over the course of the match, where up until that point, they kind of more leave it to Jimmy Hart. It has Jimmy Hart, I feel that too, because Jimmy Hart gets beat up by by Sherry. He gets hit by the most lethal weapon in pro pro wrestling, the high-heeled shoe. Yeah, it's known to take out a wrestler's eye on multiple occasions in the coming years. Thank goodness he wears sunglasses. I mean, imagine that's true, what yeah. would happen if he didn't. That's that's very true. <laughs> but yeah, I think my, my big issue is just that they did everything you could possibly do against Hogan, leaving nothing there for mm-hmm. for a rematch. It's they're basically treating this this Hogan Flair match as here is the Hogan Flair match you're gonna get. Yeah. Here's everything you possibly want to see. Which if it really is the only one you ever get, then fine there that's I, I would have no real problem with that right but they do go on to do a feud so it's kind of it's less of a problem for this match and more of a problem for the matches that are going to come afterwards yeah it's it's a question of long-term versus short-term thinking yeah yeah which i can again going back to what bischoff had said i can kind of see why wcw might not be into long-term thinking at this point mm-hmm. if they were really in as dire straits as he kind of says yeah. but um it doesn't mean it's a great idea necessarily the other reason something that happens is when you want to do something for so long and so many ideas just build up over time yeah. someone has to be there you always have reason like you have the Indian Arn Anderson guy to go wait you're going to do this spot and this spot and this spot and just like read on the checklist yeah. like I mean Sherry uses like everything that she has on as a weapon throughout yes. this match her shoes to her stocking through her, her body in fact they do the successful splash and the unsuccessful splash yeah in the same match yeah, it does feel like they're throwing literally everything out there, which does help it become such a huge spectacle, but at the same time, it's probably going to be a negative in the future. Halloween Havoc is the ne- their next big match. Yeah. Like, you know, what can they do in that match they didn't do in this one already? Mm-hmm. This had an absolutely epic feel, as both guys boosted by a very excited crowd, performed with tons of energy and charisma. I really appreciate that they both pulled out some unusual spots, particularly Hogan's expanded holds in mat wrestling versus his usual sort of match. Yeah. It felt like both guys realized that this match was very important and needed to match people's hopes, so they went the extra mile, and that's appreciated. Yeah. 
They built a good solid story, too, mixing the Hogan tropes and Flair tropes quite well. It does at times feel a bit cut together, as I felt like I could tell when it switched from Hogan match to Flair match and back. Yeah. But it nicely blends the two different styles of performance without devaluing either one. True. This was a dream match for a lot of people, and putting this on was absolutely huge for WCW, so it needed to be good, and it was. Yeah. This wasn't just a typical Hogan match with Ric Flair in it. Right. They they put a lot of time into this. Hogan, to his credit, does work really hard in this match. Mm-hmm. By the end of the match, his you know his hair is all all sweaty. <laughs> yes, he he doesn't you know doesn't doesn't half it. It shows that at the very least at this point in time, even though he's he's got I'm sure a very juicy contract mm-hmm. with the very limited dates and yada yada, he's not gonna just sort of rest on his laurels to use that cliche in this match. I think I think Hogan realizes that this is the match above all matches where he has to absolutely prove that he was worth that contract that he got. Yes. And so he really does pull out all the stops, whereas Jesse Ventura would say pull out no stops. Yes. <laughs> but no, he, he really does does uh work quite hard in this match and I, I gotta give him credit for it. And of course, like not discounting Flair at all in it. Flair of course. Flair does an absolutely amazing job of selling like mad for this man. And doing a lot of really high energy spots, putting on a good show, like you said, pulling up per- perhaps too many uh, tricks and everything, but but yeah. still really, really going to town on making this the most exciting match he possibly can. Mm-hmm. As I sort of alluded to, Hogan, with his nice contract, has more limited dates than a lot of guys do, which, you know, if you, if you, you can get that kind of work. I don't necessarily fault you for it, as long as you yeah. work hard. The next pay-per-view, Fall Brawl, there's not another Hogan match. Instead, Fall Brawl is about establishing who the number one contender will be for Hogan at a later show. Okay. So that leads to, they mentioned after the uh, second match, the Triangle Elimination match, which involves three men, the Guardian Angel, Vader, and the man called Sting. Oh, okay. So maybe we'll get that Hogan-Sting match after all. (laughs) We cut backstage where Hogan and Hart walk through the arena halls, Hart holding the belt because I guess Hogan is tired. Fair enough. It's a happy belt. Yeah. <laughs> that is fair enough, yeah. It it is interesting. Uh this show is the one time I've ever seen the WSW big gold belt and thought it looked small when Shaq was holding it over him. Oh yeah. He has a line where it says like it looks like a cuff thing on right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's good, yeah. Hogan says hello to Brutus Beefcake and Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who looks great, actually. He's in terrific shape. Yeah, he's just hanging out backstage. Oh hey, hey Hacksaw. <laughs> Back to Tony and Heenan, and Tony continues to try to get Heenan to talk. Tony praises Hogan's determination as Heenan glares at him. Backstage again, Hogan takes the belt with a holy moly. Yeah, that's how I'd react if I got to hold the big gold belt too, I think. Yeah. He proclaims himself the one world champion, and they kind of hold the shot on him for too long, so he just goes, yeah, and all right, as he walks the rest of the way down the hall to the interview room. (laughs) Yeah. Could have maybe cut one more time, guys. Yeah. (laughs) Gene Okerlund and many, many, many wrestlers and other people wait for him there. Ladies and gentlemen, I have been down the road with this man, and they used to say back in the Prohibition days, the good old days are back, and believe me, Hulk Hogan, congratulations, WCW heavyweight champion. You have done it again, my friend. What a day. Well, you know something, Mean Gene. 
everything that was old is now new again, brother. And I told all the Hulkamaniacs, how'd you like to go on one long ride? And they said, yeah, brother, we'd like to go. I said, well, that's cool. Just as long as the Hulkster's driving, brother. And tonight in Orlando, all the way around the world, all the way to New York City, brother, Tokyo, Japan, Africa, Asia, it all points in between. Hulkamania is running more powerful than it's ever been. Jimmy Hart was watching my back. Mr. T, the maniac mugger, was roaming the crowd. Shack Attack, who was hanging on the belt, was shaking his head all the way through for Hulkamania. I had George Foreman on my Hulk of home, brother, giving me beat by beat instructions. And all I got to say is I pity the fool, brother. I feel sorry for Ric Flair because as the thousands of Hulkamaniacs were stalking the arena, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, one of my number one Hulkamaniacs, the hacker, was talking the crowd. Great friends were coming out, man. Pillman was there. Johnny B. Bad was there. We were rocking and rolling the place. And what is the WCW going to do now that Hulkster still rules? Woo! Well, I got a, a great idea. I'm certain that these fans here are going to partake in a little food and drink tonight. Brian, great to see you. Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Brian Pillman is here. Bill Shaw, president of World Champ, the Guardian Angel. And what about the contingent from Japan? Saito, Anoki, and dignitaries from all over the world. Hammerin' Hank Aaron is here. Shaquille O'Neal. I have never seen a turnout like this in my life. Holster. Well, brother, Flair was caged in, dude. The Shaq attack told me that all I had to do was stand there and lay the brother up, you know, lay him from one corner to the other. And then, as if he tried to make his escape, Mr. T was there to bend him in a big old pretzel. And if we bent him in a ball, Shaq was going to slam him. And as he bounced off the floor, Hammer and Hank was going to knock him back in the ring, brother. So, Ric Flair. You had no choice, no choice, brother. You had to face Hulkamania. You had to feel the power. And Mean Gene, can you imagine now, with all those little maniacs in the WCW, with the Shaq attack, with George Foreman, with everybody wearing the headbands, hiding their dome, with everybody ripping the shirts off, brother, with my shirts being torn all around the world, can you imagine the pythons, the power I'm gonna have when I step in that ring again with my next opponent, brother? And I'd like to know who that's going to be because I've got a feeling there are going to be a lot of them standing in line. I just feel sorry for the next dude. Ric Flair walked that aisle and profiled too many times as far as I'm concerned. I told the brother to leave his limo running, fill the Learjet up with gas, because as soon as we get done partying, me and all my brothers here at the WCW, we're flying all the way back to Venice Beach, and we're going to be riding tiger sharks this weekend, dude. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to be there to do it and be part of it. Ladies and gentlemen from Orlando, Florida. Objective journalism from Gene Oakland. <laughs> yes. This was absolutely bonkers. Yeah. Hogan basically plays word association with everyone he sees around the room or saw earlier in the night. It feels like Hogan's doing double the crazy Hogan promo because he didn't get to do one before the match. It does feel like that, yeah. That's probably where he would have put the bit about turning Flair into a pretzel or a ball for Shaq and Hank Aaron yeah. to deal with otherwise. Absolutely, yeah. But it gives the show a really weird but high-energy ending. I would have liked just a touch more anticipation of who Hogan will face next, but Hogan does at least bring the point up, so it's not entirely backward-looking. Yeah, true. I just hope the Tiger Sharks were some kind of jet ski, not, you know, literal sharks. You never quite know with a Hogan promo. <laughs> Yeah, there's a one where he talks about paddling through all the red tide and you know to the to get to the yes, yes. <laughs> which is definitely not not recommended. Don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Did you catch Hogan praising somebody's hairstyle as we cut? By the way, yeah. <laughs> I wonder who he was talking. Uh, cl- close by are Jim Duggan and Brian Pillman at that point, so maybe it's one of them. 
Yeah, I'm guessing it's probably Duggan, but I'm not really sure on that. <laughs> that's, that's so funny. Oh, by the way, try not to get too distracted watching Brian Pillman, who spends most of the promo standing dead center on the screen, smiling awkwardly like a kid whose mom pushed him to the front of the crowd and who has no idea what to do when he ends up center stage with a camera right on him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One person I want to mention that is there, he's mentioned briefly in that as well, B. Brian Blair is there. Oh, okay. I think he's the first Brian. He's the first Brian that... uh, And then he says, oh, Brian Pillman, yeah. Brian, nice to see you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Brian Blair is most known as one of the killer bees in WWF, but he was also Hogan's very first opponent when he was in wrestling school. Interesting. Yeah. It's understandable that if Hogan's big show, he invites him there. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I love the low-key nature of Axel Jeb Duggan's debut in WCW. Yes. He's just hanging out shirtless backstage. He was just oiling up for his not-match he had that night, I guess. One thing that's really funny about that, contrasting the, I guess, Hogan hyperbole, to use that phrase properly, and, like, reality, he's talking so much about, like, how Shaq is going to, like, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to slam the ball that is Ric Flair's body. This brief period where you can see Shaq, he's sitting there, I don't think he's bored, but he's, like, sitting there, he's not, like, cheering or, like, yeah. acting really excited whenever they cut to him. He's just sitting there. He seems, he seems interested, but yeah, yeah. I think a little bit of it is I think he's concentrating on remembering where he's got to go and what he's got to do to get the belt right at the end of the yeah. match. Probably, like it, it looks like the guy unused to actually playing a role, playing a role. Yeah, yeah. No, I got you. It's just funny. He's like, yeah, you know, Shaq's gonna come in and, and stop you, brother. I'm like, yeah, I saw Shaq. He didn't think he was doing a whole lot. But okay. <laughs> if anything, Shaq said he's gonna be impartial. Though he does high-five Hogan before the match. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's fun, but it is a weird thing. You you get a whole show of build-up of Hogan versus Flair is going to be the match of the century. It's the greatest match of all time. And it happened, and it's a big dynamic thing, and everyone cheers. Then Hogan walks to the back, and there's a long period of time where he's just talking after the show seemingly is over. Yeah. It's it's a little reminiscent, actually, of the really early Starcades. I was thinking that too. Yeah, yeah. So it is kind of actually it's it's a weirdly WCW thing for this former WWF guy to be coming in and doing. I remember it, like the very first one, isn't it? That Flair wins the title from Harley Race, mm-hmm. has a promo in the ring that's short. Yes, but then they have like a good thirteen minutes. I really oh, yeah, yeah, show yeah. of additional promos from him and a whole bunch of other people. They gear up the show, I think, and then go to talk to him in the back. Yeah, and then appear to run out of time because Gordon Soli is like halfway through a line when it cuts. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's like okay. <laughs> yeah, and I think to your point. Some of the reason why the Hogan thing is prolonged is because he has two Hogan promos in a short period of time. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so much of that Hogan promo, like I said, the whole idea that Mr. T was going to like bend Flair into a ball and then be bounced by Shaq and then hit with the bat into the ring by Hank Aaron, mm-hmm. it's definitely something he would have done before a match. Yeah. Like, you know, about Flair, you, you can't run from the match, brother. Yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 You and I are familiar with Hogan promos. Yeah. But imagine if you're a WCW fan. And just have genuinely not watched much or any WWF. You're familiar with the idea of Hulk Hogan. You know that this is a big performer. Yeah, you've heard of him, but you've never seen him. A big deal that he's here. Yeah, yeah, of course. But you've never watched a Hogan promo before. And then you see this, you're like, what is going on here? Yeah. <laughs> it's amazingly yeah. weird. <laughs> it's a lot of people's reaction to when, but four years from now, when Ultimate Warrior shows up. Yes. And start doing his weird cryptic nonsense. People are like, what's going on? Who, who is this who guy? Who are you? What is going on? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
Heenan shakes off his mopiness to say that Flair has won the title time after time and he will not just disappear. Hogan has started a war that General Schwarzkopf couldn't win. (laughs) And Flair will hunt him for the rest of his life. Heenan storms off. Tony thanks everybody and signs off with, Wrestling is cool again! And Bash at the Beach 1994 is done. It is funny that the the least cool guy in the show says wrestling is cool again. Uh, yeah, fair. I like Tony, but but fair. I do, yeah, yeah. Overall thoughts on the show, then? Um, as a whole, it's a pretty strong show. It's got a real strong opening match. It's quite enjoyable. They do little teases of other stuff with the Inoki segment. You have promos throughout that both relate to previous matches, like Flair the Anderson match and his turn. And then building up the Hogan match. The only match I didn't really love was the tag match. And even that, again, is not terrible. Edge is a question of how you'll feel about the sort of meshing of these two teams and how they unfortunately have to work against a crowd that, like I said, is really antsy. They really should have put a Hogan promo somewhere in here. The Jack and Sullivan one, you mean? Yeah, sorry. Actually, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. Matt, sorry. Yeah, if they put a Hogan promo at some point, like after the Arn promo, for instance, that sort of got the crowd, give them a little taste of what they're going to get, and then they would have been less. Yeah. And once we would have gotten, could have gotten a shorter Hogan promo at the end because he would have had so much insane stuff built up over. <laughs> it, it's like, yeah, you know, like the hose. You, a bunch of wires got to come out right away. Because that needed a pressure release valve, yeah. He really did, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as a whole, there's this good matches throughout. Like I said, Bad and Regal's good. Vader and Angel's good. I uh, enjoyed the not really tag team match, the Dustin and Arn one, because it wasn't really a tag match. Yeah. Timo Dawson was really good. Uh, I even enjoyed, like I said, enjoyed the spectacle of the Hogan Flair match. Again, the only issue being, I think they kind of used every trick they possibly could. They, I'm not sure where they can go from here, storyline-wise, and boy, well, I guess match-wise, really. What other tricks have you not done? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as a whole, it's quite enjoyable. I found this such an easy watch. There's only six matches, all of them good, I would say, overall. Just, I I agree with you on the one that's a little bit weaker than the others. Mm -hmm. But there's just such a sense of energy and excitement across the night with a really, really hot crowd for the majority of the show. There's no real points of slowdown or struggle other than maybe that world tag title match feeling a tad long. Mm -hmm. I would also maybe have considered shuffling the order slightly if I were them, to intersperse the three shorter matches from the start between the three longer matches from the end. Yeah, I see that. But that's a really minor quibble. Just would have broken things up a bit more. Promo content was very strong. There's actually not that many of them, but they all receive a good amount of time and excellently delivered. They're also nice and varied. We get Regal challenging Inoki in the ring, Arn's promo while he's getting champagne dumped all over him in the back, Flair with a more normal interview setup, and Hogan's celebratory promo amongst a crowd. True. So it's nice to see the different settings and feels for each one, rather than them all being in the same setting. Yeah. Well, here, just to increase our count, go back to uh, Spring Stampede 2000. Yes. Where every time, let's just cut back to the same interview area with a little the tarp up there. And give them 20 seconds. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. It'll come as no surprise that I love the commentary. We got Tony and Heenan and Tony and Jesse, two teams I really enjoy, and in both cases, they did great jobs. I expected the changeouts between Jesse and Bobby to bother me, but they actually did a good job of just slipping those in so it felt natural. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a weird secondary set of hosts discussing things between the matches this time. Oh yeah, that's true. 
We've reached the traditional commentary team with an interviewer now, which feels much smoother. Mm. The show's setup and presentation was also excellent. I can't recall much in the way of technical or camera problems this time offhand, and the beach set and the expanded use of graphics were great. There's a point where they end up on the outside, like they're following them fighting the outside, and whoever's the cameraman, I don't think it's Jackie Crockett. He's staying on the floor and pointing up at the action, which means he's pointing the camera right at the light, bright lights coming down. Fair enough. So this, yeah. yeah, so this point where I'm like, uh, could you maybe look at somewhere else? That they're putting her right at the lights, please? Okay. But that, yeah, that's, that's like a few minutes as part of the whole show. Yeah. Overall, this felt really professional and fun. The only minor knock is the weird faded look of the wooden birds, but again, minor quibble. Yeah. Overall, this was a really important show for WCW, and I think they nailed it. Yeah. What's to come, particularly in December of this year, may take a bit of a tumble. (laughs) But for the first night of the Hogan era, WCW put on a very good show that's just plain fun. So this is the last show in WCW for Jesse Ventura. There's long-standing issues between Hogan and Ventura. Some legit, like... um, there's apparently a thing where Ventura was trying to unionize the wrestlers, and Hogan uh, less interested in that. In his defense, he has a great deal, and why should anyone else have a great deal, I suppose, is his mindset. Not the best answer, but that's one way of looking at it. Less validated, there's a whole thing with Ventura about how he feels that a lot of stuff he could have gotten had he not gotten that weird like blood poisoning issue he had, and he had to retire. The sort of a jealousy thing, earned or unearned, uh, between the two of them. So they were still bulk taping to save money, because especially now they spend a bunch carrying Hogan and his friends. They would tape WCW Saturday Night and Worldwide at the MGM Studios, and there'd be breaks between the shows. Apparently, depending on who you ask, uh, Ventura was backstage taking a nap between when he was needed to do commentary for one of those shows and the next one. He was ratted out as being like lazy on the job, apparently, was the mindset. Because he was taking a nap when he was not needed on camera, which is doesn't seem like a bad idea. And a lot of people point blame to Hogan there. I'm not sure who's really at fault here, but that's where the story's told. Okay. So basically, pretty much right after Hogan comes in, like it's within two weeks of this show happening, the incident happens, and he's fired for backstage issues, as they say. And Ventura's gone for forever, basically. In WCW, he's other places, obviously. Yeah, he still exists. Yeah, yeah, he, and, he, and he works at the rest of the companies. Hogan didn't Thanos snap him out of existence. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I, that's that's interesting, because I'd always just assume, because I think a couple shows prior to this, you start having this uh, trade back and forth between him and Heenan. Yeah. I always assumed that was just kind of phasing him out. I think that may have been the intent. But it just happens faster than they... In, yeah. Than they were, okay, gotcha. The goal would probably be more like what happened with Heenan, unfortunately, in 2000. Or they take him off of Nitro because they want Mark Madden, of all people, <laughs> on there. Can't even say his name without grinding teeth a little bit there. Yeah. But uh, but they also didn't release him. They didn't fire him. They didn't mm. put him on Worldwide and like Saturday Night. And he, he still did all the same thing he would do, just not on the main show. Gotcha. I get the that was probably what the plan was. But then things escalated very quickly for right or wrong or better or worse uh, with the two of them. Okay. Uh, match of the night and MVP then. So, Al, what is your match of the night? Again, this is a pretty strong show. I can make a case for the first match being quite good. Same thing with the Vader Garden Angel match. Mm-hmm. I think if that had gone to a more inclusive finish and wasn't quite as awkward at the end where they 
did a match finish and then did the whole storyline DQ thing at the end, I think it would be easy one to pick his match that night for me. The uh, handicap match slash tag match was really good in a lot of ways. And even the main event, like I said, obviously, if you listen to any of these shows, you know I'm not a Hogan fan <laughs> by a long mile. Uh, but I thought the two of them worked really well together and really, at least in the middle parts of the match, gave you know, stuff to do. I was more likely to pick a Hogan match than I was actually thinking mm-hmm. going into this. Like, oh yeah, sure, Hogan match, whatever. But it's, it's Hogan Flair, and they both work really hard. Ultimately, for me, I have to pick Steamboat and Austin. Even though it has a, a heel cheating to win, they tell a great story throughout the match, and again, that's part of the story is that. So it's not a bunch of a cheat. Okay. Uh, for me, this was also between Austin versus Steamboat, and in my case, Hogan versus Flair. Fair enough. The former, I agree, I think is better as far as match quality and certainly no slouch in the character department, but I am actually going to give it to Hogan versus Flair on this one. That's fine. It features some absolutely incredible crowd interaction, and Hogan and Flair both put on a great show in the ring, going beyond what they actually needed to do. Mm. It's also very important to the company, so taking a bit of the Mullins theory of Match of the Night from Starcade 1997 here, this show does not exist without this match. That's true. So it is quite literally the match of the night. Yeah. Note that this is a much better match than Hogan versus Sting from that show, though. Yeah. Plus, when do I give match of the night to Hogan? I gotta take opportunities where I can. I, I That's fair, yeah. MVP? Okay, so let's see real quickly. Uh, Regal for uh, his match quality and his Dugas promo while having just worked a match and covered in glitter. That's a perfectly fair choice. Vader and Angel both doing their part really well in their match are probably good choices. Dustin's real standout performance is really nice. I can almost see it for the the subtlety for the reveal and the sort of healers after the reveal with Arn Anderson, honestly, being a good choice. If he has slightly more ring work to do, that might have helped with the case. Obviously, I know for the story that makes sense why it doesn't. Mm-hmm. But it'd be it's easier to pick if he has there's more of that thing, I'd say. Obviously, Steamboat and Austin are both really good in their roles. Steamboat has a little easier time because he's playing the uh, confident, serious face against the most punctual man in wrestling at this point. Yes. Obviously, The Miz is not a wrestler yet, so he's not there yet. And, and Marcus Bagwell is still Marcus, not Buff. True, yes. And again, Flair for Flair's promo is really great. Flair gives a lot to Hogan, but Flair also does a lot of stuff he doesn't really do. He really goes out for this match. And to be fair, like I said, Hogan works really hard here in his bonkers as hell promo at the end. A bit of like three promos with the content is quite enjoyable. As much as I often lean to Steamboat, and understandably so because he's amazing, mm-hmm. I actually will give it to Steve Austin because okay. for me, his role. He's so good at this role, and like I said before, he really combined his strong character work with his match work. Uh-huh. It's all combined into the, the full package here. And again, not a lot of Austin in WCW, so to your point with Hogan, I definitely give Austin credit when I can. Yeah, absolutely. I am going to give this to Ric Flair. Okay. Not only did he do a very good job with his promo and the main event tonight, He also did just about the most selfless thing he possibly could for the company here by recruiting a major star specifically to win the title from him. Yeah. That's company loyalty right there. Mm. Recognizing we need something and how I can help is by going down to the new guy and by actually 
helping to bring the new guy in so that I can lose to him. Yeah. That's that's kind of amazing to think about. Mm-hmm. I'm giving Ric Flair MVP for similar reasons to why I chose my match of the night that I think this show does not happen without Ric Flair doing what he does. Yeah. Oh, and I didn't mention that absolutely in the ring for MVP is Bobby Heenan. He's so good in this show. Yeah, absolutely. Bobby Heenan has one of his best performances. It's it's right up there with uh, his famous like Rumble 92 call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where he's just just such a like relentless Ric Flair cheerleader the whole night, and yes. absolutely distraught as he's, he like you, he can see the end coming during this match, and just just absolutely amazing work by this guy. Absolutely. And that wraps up our review of Bash of the Beach 1994. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance at pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up... Bash at the Beach 1995, an event so hot, they had to put it on the beach. If, if the show's already hot, shouldn't you put it someplace cold so the audience doesn't roast? Yeah, put in the shade. That's what the shade is for. How about Bash at the Beach 1995, an event so hot, they had to put it in Antarctica? Yeah. I suppose that might be a tad chilly in the normal wrestling outfits, though. Yes. <laughs> This is this is the only bash of the beach that is legitimately a bash at the beach though. It is it is literally on a beach, yeah, which is fascinating. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, and wrestling is cool again. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling.